0: Okay. Uh, as Secretary of Transportation, I officially call to order uh, the Commonwealth Transportation Board's uh, May uh, formal uh, session, action session. And as I said before, we're going to come into this and we're going to go into speaker comment and then go back to our, our workshop. I did want to review the, the rules for speaking uh, speakers here, the Commonwealth Transportation Re- Board rules. Um, Typically when we have our hearings around the state, I try not to limit your time, but we have a lot of speakers today. Our uh, role here is to do the business. We allow you to come talk, but I will hold you strictly to three minutes. Please don't take that as a sign that I'm being disrespectful, but in uh, honor to everyone and to the board here, and the work we have to do, it will be held to three minutes. What I'll do is have you come up in the order in which you've been uh, signed up, so there's no particular order. I'll let the next person know that they're on, on deck. Uh, we do ask you to, any comment you'd like to make is fine. We, we do uh, ask you to be civil and, and uh, uh, meaningful uh, comments as we take them seriously in that regard. Uh, but we will be held to three minutes, and I also want to apologize in advance. If I say your name wrong, it's not intended to be disrespectful. I may not have read it uh, in the proper manner. So with that, we look forward to hearing from you. Our first uh, speaker today, I'll have you come up to the podium here, it is Deanna Hare, if I've spelled that right. And then Daniel Zim will be next up. Um, so uh, as soon as I call your name... Uh, you'll be limited to the three minutes. So if you have handouts, I'll just put them on the desk right there and we'll make sure you get them. So with that, uh, Ms. Hare, and we'll start the three minutes, please. Thank you. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much. Um, as you stated, my name is Deanna Heyer, and I'm here representing several neighbors and families who have concerned about VDOT's recommendations for the 495-66 interchange specifically in the outside the Beltway project. And we appreciate that VDOT and Secretary Wayne's willingness to discuss alternative solutions and we'd like to propose an alternative for you all, which would significantly reduce the financial cost and the footprint of this project. Specifically, we ask that you consider ending the I-66 toll lanes between Chambers Road and Nutley instead of extending them to 495. We also propose that you offer five general purpose lanes instead between 495 and the toll lanes, and my reasons are stated within, and there are attachments in your supplemental materials also. VDOT's Tier 2 report notes that a similar option was actually considered by the the group, but it has been set aside for now pending further traffic analysis related to the I-66 inside the Beltway project. It's not being presented in the public hearings, and we're concerned that this viable option has been passed over due to the rapid speed at which the project is moving, which is understandable, but we don't want to leave any options off the table. In the design comparison that you're looking at, you will see that VDOT calls this option the do nothing at 495 alternative, and I'm here to say that we really prefer calling this the do no harm alternative, and we want to think about both the cost and the benefits of what we're doing. VDAT states these benefits as no right-of-way takings at all, no construction inconvenience and minimal construction costs. And to be clear, this would mean zero home takings and would negate the need to take land at Stanwood Elementary School and would eliminate the need for several bridge expansions. So you can see the dollar signs adding up in what we could save. Our proposal would also um, offer five general purpose lanes at a choke ch- ch- point at Nutley Right now, you see on the news last night, there's four lanes, if you include the red X lane, which is only offered at rush hour, and the BDOT current recommendation has seven lanes pinching down into three free lanes, so we don't know yet how many people are going to take those toll lanes to help alleviate this choke point, but we're proposing that we keep five general purpose lanes during this choke point in order to not make this worse. The Geno Harm Alternative also offers significant environmental benefits by minimizing the impact to the watershed because there would be less cement and less impervious surfaces. It also decreases noise and pollution by eliminating up to nine new flyover ramps that are proposed in these designs, and they're planned to tower 80 feet over our communities. There's simply no sound wall that you can create that will protect our families from these flyovers. So we ask that VDOT give time to complete the VDOT um, inside the Beltway traffic analysis and evaluate what the other pr- improvements in the plan thank you for your will do comments, for overall talk.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh,
0: uh, Mr. Sim, Daniel Zem. Okay, next we have Chris Van Storey. Ms. Van Storey? Oh, good. And on deck will be Jennifer Siciliano. Uh, if I show that correct.
2: Yeah, I would suggest, if you'd like, if you
0: just leave them up there, we will review them, because we are limited to three minutes if you'd start the clock first. Thank you so much, you ma'am. Thank you.
3: My name is Trish VanStory, and I'm the president of the PTA at Senwood Elementary. I want to thank you for having me here, and I want to thank all of you for your service to our state. PTA officers are not traditionally involved in political issues, but this is no political issue for our school. The plan for I-66 expansion, as it is written now, simply spells the death of our ball fields at Stenwood Elementary. No more baseball. No more track. Fewer gym classes outside. Fewer school assemblies outside. Major and incalculable loss of facility by losing this land. I attended the community meeting at Kilmer Middle School where VDOT representative Susan Shaw fielded the quest, fielded question after question about the VDOT plan to widen I-66. When I spoke, I asked the audience to raise their hands if their children attend Stenwood, used to attend Stenwood, or play ball on the fields at Stenwood. Probably 80 percent of the audience of 200 plus people raised their hands. Mrs. Shaw's response: "Quote." I have heard the Stenwood Elementary School impact loud and clear. We do have our designer here today. He's listening to all these comments, so Mike, I need you guys to come and look at an alternative that would remove the impact from the ball field at Stenwood. Let's see what we can do about that." At that point, the entire audience clapped. I believe that was the first and only time Ms. Shaw received an ovation during that morning when she announced the good news that they would re-examine the treatment of Stenwood's ball fields. But now the new VDOT plan is out, and it continues to butcher Stenwood's, Stenwood's ball fields in half. No change. Public speaking courses teach us to be persuasive, not angry. But I'm angry. No change? All to expand I-66 outside of the Beltway, where just a mile away, the expansion is all happening within the current walls. This is land that cannot be replaced, cannot be found somewhere else. So I beg you, save our school fields, save our community fields, find a better way to achieve your goal of easier commutes. There are so many alternatives. And so many very smart people who work with VDOT make it a priority to find a better way. Keep I-66 within its current walls. And here are some pictures to show you how we use our ball fields and the students who will be affected by their loss.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Ms. Van Story. Thank we you. Appreciate, all. appreciate your time this morning, uh, Jennifer Siciliano, uh, and then next, Vinny Van Castesson. Good morning, ma'am.
4: Good morning. My name is Jennifer Ciciliano. My husband, Mark, and I live at 8051 Pritchard's Court in Den Loring, and we would be adversely affected by the alternatives proposed. While I think the most effective way to provide input to proposed projects is not criticism, rather suggestions of ways the proposals can be improved to meet all needs, <clears throat> I do have to begin by saying that we were quite upset to learn about these proposals on a public website where our names were listed without our knowledge, so as opposed to an outreach effort that match the significance of potentially losing our home. It has been said that postcards were mailed to those affected, and while I have yet to receive that postcard, I believe it was an insufficient method to approach such a decision with life-changing implications for those affected. I certainly acknowledge the need for change, but I don't endorse change that is not strategically thought through, operating established communities whose residents have spent years creating lives in a place they chose to live For all the reasons the regional marketing professionals and government representatives emphasize when attempting to sell the Fairfax County brand. I live, work, and play in the same general vicinity and my kids live within walking distance of their schools. Isn't that one of the goals we've been trying to achieve? Now I'm being penalized for drinking that Kool-Aid. The original proposal showed a significant portion of our property being taken for stormwater management ponds, which are not part of the new designs, However, the new designs still show a large, as in 70 to 80 feet at its tallest, flyover ramp that will still eliminate the majority of our acre and a half of woods and current buffer. Additionally, these are slated to be general purpose lanes, meaning the sound of tractor trailers and jake brakes will become as common as the birds chirping, all at a monster height taller than any sound wall could ever mitigate. As a result, our property will significantly decline in value, an investment we consciously made in Dunloring and in Fairfax County almost 20 years ago. The flyover ramp needs to go. Back to strategy, a few years ago when the hot lanes were being proposed, we were also faced with the, with the possibility of a right-of-way impact. However, those decisions with impact input from the community were significantly mitigated. There were many sleepless nights of unbearable pounding while the sound wall was being built for those eight to 10 months, but we endured, and as a result, the result was mutually agreeable. I'd like to know how much that wall costs the taxpayers and why, after only a few years, it will be torn down to accommodate this new plan. That's not strategic at all. That's simply poor planning, and as a taxpayer in the Commonwealth, I'm pretty angry about that. I appreciate the opportunity to provide comments today, but I certainly hope that this Board considers fully the implications of these proposals. There are alternatives to just building more roads, and you need to take a hard look at those before simply destroying communities and the lives of those who live in them.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Benny Ventasad. if I sound that correct, and then uh, Mary Hagapayan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh,
5: it's Benny Venkatasad. I live in uh, uh, Dunloring, Merrifield area. I applaud you all. You, you've moved the red line. You've, uh, redu- you've increased the number of homes being taken. Um, you decided to go away from the P3 which is a good thing we've seen it uh, negatively affect uh, 495 and 95 um, we, have a, we have a regional problem at our hand that needs a regional solution Susan Shaw has said that from VDOT so that means the whole community needs to come together all up and down 66 right now we're seeing just Dunloring Merrifield, Vienna um, and in the Fairfax as you get into where it's tight it's been allowed to be developed uh, be adversely affected we see schools land being taken, Stenwood Elementary, uh, Marshall Road on Nutley. Nutley's going to take a huge impact. Um, I recently did my uh, kitchen this uh, December, and they asked me when I went in, would you like to do a rip and repair or rip and remodel? And I was, well, I just want to do rip and repair because that's the cheapest. And that seems to be what you all are doing with 66. You're not doing a true transform. Uh, people aren't going to get in buses I'm curious to see what study you have done in the area where people actually got in a bus um, that took them to access points other than straight to DC people don't go straight to DC they go to Reston they go to McLean they go to Tyson's Corner Um, some go they veer off down so why would a person get in a bus just to dump them off at Nutley perhaps what we need is a regional solution it's Metro it's VRE it's buses, it's everything working together. We have mega in the area. Why not incorporate them? We see Loudoun County doing it, but not Prince William, not Fauquier County for folks to get down there. Um, another thing to think about, we have 267 right here. It's a pure toll lane, and we have route seven right here. We see what happens in the morning. People either decide to pay the toll or they decide to get in the traffic where they don't wanna pay the toll. Now I know 66 is a different animal. We can't just go and toll it, but I urge you to work with the, the transportation committee on the federal side and find that solution. If people want to live out in Haymarket and Manassas and have that cheaper home, we've decided in this area that we're going to have a less expensive home. We're going to have a modest home, and we're going to live in a transit-oriented neighborhood. And now you're taking those homes. You're punishing us. You're making us then go be part of the problem rather than the solution. We get on metro. We don't. We don't cause traffic. We we, we ease traffic. So I urge you to go back to the tier one study. I know uh, the Coalition for Smarter Growth has said that. I urge you to do that. I've attended several VDOT meetings, probably five or six. Not one of those meetings has anybody stood up besides VDOT representatives and said, this is a great idea. Let's move forward with this. In fact, one member in in Vienna in Oakton came and he said, I'm from Fauquier County and this is not a good idea. What's it gonna do? It's just gonna increase traffic on 66. If you build it, they will come. People are going to continue to move out. Um, during construction and after construction, it's just going to be as bad as it is now. Thank you. Thank you, sir, very much. Uh,
0: Ms. Hagopian, if I've said that correctly, I apologize. And Hagopian. Black, Douglas Stewart. Good morning, ma'am.
6: Good morning. My name is Mary Hagopian, and I would like to speak to Roger you this that. morning on behalf of my family with regard to the unwise and ill-thought expansion of I-66. We are a retired United States Marine Corps family, and we have lived in this area on and off for the last 30 years. In August of 2007, we purchased our home at 8056 Pritchard's Court in Dunloring, which abuts the I-495 interchange to I-66 on the northwest quadrant. Shortly after we moved in, we became aware of the expansion of I-495 and the development of hot lanes on it. With almost no time to react as homeowners with adjacent property, reconstruction of this interchange began in July 2008 and continued for the next four years. Throughout that time, we lived without a sawn wall for nine months, were awakened many a night from demolition blasts of bridges and became quite familiar with bulldozers and other heavy construction outside our front window. Interestingly, I would march my children out to the orange fence, which was one of the only things separating us from one of the largest interchanges on the Eastern seaboard, and I would tell them, get a good look. You're seeing history in the making. You won't see this again for 50 years. Rarely do I admit this and don't tell my husband, but I was wrong. It took VDOT and Transurban four years to complete the I-495 hot lanes, and now, a mere three years later, not 50, they want to start all over again, tearing down and reconfiguring what they just built at this interchange to add a high-speed flyover ramp 80 feet into the air and take one of the only small forests remaining in the area away from the wildlife, away from the conservation easement of which it is designated, and away from a community that has been established here for 25 years. Compared to the vetting that was conducted and completed for the I-495 hot lanes and the decade it took to complete beginning in 1994, the rapid advancement of the I-66 widening, lack of home and property owner notification, and desired project start date less than two years from now could be considered, at the very least, reckless. I'd like to point out that for the eight years my family has lived here in this home, we have experienced VDOT mega projects for over half of them. And now, you're asking us to endure another five years of disruption and destruction. What has my family done, other than being good, law-abiding, Virginia voting, and tax-paying citizens serving this great country, to deserve this egregious action that is being ramrodded into place by the Commonwealth of Virginia? We would like to see this project stopped altogether. However, we are asking you to scale back the design for this interchange and work within the existing right-of-way. We are asking you to utilize the current existing ramp that moves traffic from I-495 south onto I-66 west and not add any additional high-speed flyover ramps. We are asking you, BDOT, our elected officials, to be mindful of your citizens who live and work in this area and hear our voices. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much, ma'am.
0: Mr. Stewart and then uh, Thomas Kramer.
7: Good morning, Good morning. Good morning, Secretary Lane, members of the, of the tr- Commonwealth Transportation Board. Uh, my name is Douglas Stewart. I'm speaking for the I-66 Corridor Coalition. We're an alliance of environmental, smart growth, transportation, uh, and bicycle groups, uh, working for long-term, effective solutions to transportation in the I-66 corridor. Uh, first, I want to say we very much appreciate, uh, the commitment, uh, that Secretary Lane has, has stated uh, for integrating transit, um, operating end capital into this project. Our concern though is that the plan will not adequately address near term transportation needs and will also foreclose long term solutions that address those needs. Our coalition favors a transit first approach to, to solving our transportation problems and we believe that the NEPA studies have failed to fully analyze a transit first alternative that incorporates land use that would maximize trips by transit, walking, and bicycling. Uh, the discussion this morning about land use and transportation and coordination was, was very illuminating, uh, and it was really uh, great to hear about incur- incre- increasing methods to look at how our land uses are going to have synergies with our transportation projects. If you look at this corridor, this is a perfect example. We have evolving land uses, places like Dunloring, Fair Oaks just outside the corridor where we're standing today in Tysons, Route 28, of mixed-use, compact, walkable development. And one thing that we really think this project needs to be asking as we're moving forward is how is it encouraging these kinds of land uses, enabling more people to use alternatives to single-occupancy vehicle trips? On the other hand, is it perpetuating patterns of land use such as all of the development we've seen in the western part of the corridor where people don't have a viable transportation option besides single occupancy vehicle travel. Uh, we're going, I'm just going to speak to three specific concerns about the project. First of all, stormwater management. We, we strongly urge that the stormwater management, current stormwater management standards for protecting the bay be applied to the entire roadbed not just the added impervious surface. In our minds, that's not a nice-to-have, that's a must-have. Uh, second, as as I alluded to, we think that the current transit ride, uh, ridership projections, although it's a robust plan, we think they could be much higher if they were combined with, with more vigorous land-use scenarios that enabled more people to connect to transit um, by other means besides driving. Uh, and third, um, we appreciate the incorporation of bi- bicycling and pedestrian facilities. We um, we understand those plans are still in development. Those plans really need to be integrated into the final design plans. Um, just one final comment. I'm actually speaking as uh, for the Virginia Sierra Club on this. We fully support keeping congestion mitigation at 35% for Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh,
0: Thomas Kramer.
7: Uh, and then Delegate uh, Jim Lemonyan.
8: Thank
9: you for the opportunity sir. to speak. My name is Thomas Cranmer. I'm a transportation expert, according to the courts here. Uh, I'm with the um, Fairfax County Taxpayers Alliance as first vice president. I'd like to comment that it's great that you're willing to consider prioritizing decision-making for uh, all of the roads and it's, it's a step forward rather than just using political clout. However, uh, the analysis presented in the last uh, day and today uh, has major deficiencies. does not used standardized methods of analysis. Um, to be specific, uh, for example, uh, in some of the presentations have been me incomprehensible about why inside the beltway Route 66 is going to increase throughput of uh, cars. Uh, Arlington County has fought it for years and then also outside the beltway uh, yesterday there was presentation by uh, Fairfax County and they didn't mention what any of the costs
2: were.
9: This is absurd. Uh, you know, to have a big presentation about this. This was a problem with the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission where they had a meeting just a few days ago and not one word was used for U.S. dollars. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, you know, we've got clearly unlimited pockets. Uh, Mr. Lane certainly has, uh, lots of money to dole out apparently. So, um Another problem has been with Route 7 expansion from Ruston Parkway to Tyson's, The Tyson's planners said Tyson's would fail if that was not expanded. It's not on the 2040 plan for NVTA. It's not in the uh, VDOT plans. They show a cost in the year 2020 for the project, uh, for the expansion, but it's not a budget item by any means. And uh, I had pointed out that uh, the Fairfax County uh, Department of Transportation had falsified the amount of money to be spent on that. They said it was $160 million. That's absurd as a civil engineer. And I went to VDOT and worked with them, and they agreed that it was a $300 million project back in two, for 2012 dollars. It's probably going to be closer to a $400 million project. There's no analysis, cost-benefit, anything about, uh, expanding Route 7. There's a lot of resistance to doing it. Thank you much for
0: your comments, sir. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Delegate Lemonian. And then on deck is, uh, Rob Whitfield. And Delegate, I've, uh, Glad to see you here, sir. We have been keeping to a three-minute limit with if if the citizens, and I'd respect that this morning, sir. I normally go longer, but since we got so many, so I appreciate I'll, that,
10: sir. I'll do my best. Thanks for including me today, and I'm yes, sorry sir. I haven't been able to spend the last uh, day and a half with you as much as I'm interested. Some of us have uh, day jobs in the General Assembly. I was thinking about what I might share with you today, and i got a few points I want to make, but I got a letter actually just coincidentally yesterday from a constituent, He's a retired uh, Air Force general, he says, Jim, I've lived uh, all over the world, but I've spent most of my time, now 20 years, in northern Virginia. I'm moving out, largely because of the traffic situation has become unbearable. You, the Virginia House of Delegates, VDOT, and the whole Virginia government richly deserve an F in your work on traffic. And then he signed his name. The last name happened to be Donahue, I assume there's no relation
11: <laughs>
10: um, but that's kind of where we are we've got a lot going on you might say well this person's just not informed well actually that was in response to a two-page letter I sent to 17,000 households in my district explaining everything that we've got going on uh, but the public perception's not changing it's going to take time we all know that uh, but we're up uh, we're up against a pretty big uh, pretty big task I want to give some credit where it's due and I'm keeping an eye on the clock Um, And some of you have heard this before, but in implementing House Bill 599, VDOT did an excellent job. I had a little bit to do with that bill. It's it's, it's to rate projects, rated according to their congestion relief in northern Virginia, and they certainly exceeded my expectations as the author of that bill. But we only rated 37 projects, and only five of those were suggested by the Commonwealth Transportation Board. We've got at least another 37 to go, maybe even twice that, and I would encourage you to hurry up. One reason is we've got this public meeting on I-66 next week, and unless you're going to pleasantly surprise us, there's no 599 rating on I-66, inside or outside the beltway. How can the public respond to these kinds of offers and opportunities without that information? Uh, You've heard a lot of people disappointed, but you don't have any data to counter their disappointment. By County Parkway would be another one. Why hasn't that been rated? Okay, if that's a political issue, at least you have the tools and the data if you would use 599 uh to address those concerns. One comment, I see I'm down to 40 seconds or so. Uh I want to make and if I and, and Mr. Secretary, I want to uh go into more detail maybe at a later time on happy to meet with tolling and, and things on I-66 with you. But just to to say I am concerned that a toll would ever be used for something other than to pay for the construction improvement or the maintenance of a road. If it becomes a cash stream for some other thing, then a lot of people say it looks like a tax. Separate from the philosophical issue about whether a toll is a tax or not, it has the effect of taking things off budget. And you said yesterday in your slides, and I agree completely, fiduciary responsibility, transparent accountability, I'm all for you. But when you take that stuff off budget, then there's no need for people to come back and justify every time there's a budget process. I think I'm out of time. I'm going yeah, to have to ask you, sir. The please. reason I exactly. didn't sign that letter from other legislators saying it would only be weighted 60% is because I still think it ought to be 100.
0: <laughs> Thank, you. Right. Thank you, sir, for being here. Uh, uh, and we will be happy to meet with you, sir, to go through that. Uh, Rob Whitfield and then Jeff Anderson. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Mr. Secretary, members of
11: the CTV. I'm Rob Whitfield. I've lived in Fairfax County since 1977. And in the last decade, I've attended some 3,000 transportation and land use planning meetings on Tysons, on Reston, and among other things, the, the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority and the WMATA. And some of the major issues facing us have not so far been addressed in this meeting and it doesn't look as if they're gonna be. But let me start from the perspective of the I-66. I've given you there the sheet from the design guidelines from 2008 and would remind you that heavy rail transit only works where densities exceed 6,600 per square mile. That is not the case of the densities outside the beltway, even in the Silver Line corridor and so please do not consider the heavy rail option. Population employment densities do not support that. Um, and the costs, of course, are prohibitive. On HB 2, there are far too many variables for any reasonable person to understand and evaluate in an objective manner. And so the question that troubles me most is, who's going to be doing the rating and the ranking? And will that be consistent from one part of Virginia to another? Uh, we have all these land use plans in Fairfax County Tyson's and Reston where literally most densities are increased by 5 to 10 times because of bringing rail but the reality is that over 90% of our mobility relies on the highway network and, and fewer than 15% use the transit system, even buses have to use the highway system the spending provisions for transit vastly exceed the demand and they need to be reduced respective of demand. The uh, I-66... Oh, well, let me switch to MWA. MWA. what I gave you in here is, is from the 2006 proposal. You'll see by looking at the next page that they promised 300 million in capital improvements for the Dulles toll road. That has not been executed. It is up to the Commonwealth to enforce the agreement made in 2006. Uh, and, and finally, within the WMATA purview, the maintenance facility at Dulles Airport, which is a 260 million capital cost, let's say another 50 million design costs and land, the Transit Authority is providing nothing, even though half of the rail cars to be maintained there will be used elsewhere in the system, nothing to do with Dallas Rail. I've repeatedly asked Chairman York, who heads the DCAC and various other people, WMATA has to have its feet held to the fire. If they want the system
12: to operate... Okay,
0: to Mr. Whitfield, and they, I, I understand your question. Yes, sir. Um, Jeff Anderson, uh, and then Nancy Smith. Good morning, sir. Good
12: morning. Uh, I'm, my name is Jeff Anderson. I live in Vienna, Virginia. Uh, I'm a member of the Fairfax County Trails and Sidewalks Committee, uh, but I'm here speaking mostly as a member of Fairfax Advocates for Better Bicycling. Um, I'm also a parent of three children and I literally just ran over here after riding my kids to school. So that's why I'm dressed in shorts and very casual. Um, I'd like to speak in support of the bicycle trail facility that we want parallel to I-66. Bicyclists in the area do not believe we are being heard enough. the Virginia state bike plan that the CTB approved, we, we believe is not being followed. We've had 500 county residents uh, send emails via a Washington area of AWABA alert to let them know that they want this facility added. Uh, we know that Fairfax County DOT is requesting a parallel bike trail. Uh, we do applaud the, the fact that the overpasses are including bike facilities, uh, and that's a result of having them included in the uh, hot lanes on 495. Um, But we need a parallel bike path in order to allow people access to the rapid bus and future metro facilities if those are ever built. Uh, At our recent Trails and Sidewalks meeting, one of our members was taking a class uh, in GIS mapping, and he decided to look at the population uh, centers around I-66. And using census data from the last census, he determined that 25% of the Fairfax County population lives within one mile of 66. Uh and if we look at the other facilities that have been built in the area, the WOD, the Cussis Trail in Arlington, uh, and the Mount Vernon Trail, when those were built, we never imagined that those would be major commuter routes for the bicycle uh bicyclists in the area. Um, and Secretary Lane himself mentioned earlier that there's an inability to build parallel roads in our area, and yet we think we're ignoring the chance to build a parallel bicycle facility along 66. The other night, I was at a VDOT presentation, and they used the words multimodal, diverse choices, and connectivity. To not include the bicycle facility does a disservice to those words. Uh, The project date, uh, the data they're using, is targeting a 2040 end of uh, lifespan, which we'll have to revisit again. And based on the growth of bicycling as a viable transportation alternative, um, if we don't build the facility today, we don't believe it will ever be built. Thank you.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, Nancy Smith. And then Joe
13: Bojuch.
14: Good morning, Morning. AC Smith with the Northern Virginia Transportation Alliance. Um, Well, yesterday and today's workshops certainly covered a lot of uh, important and complex material. I'm sure you all um, will have a headache by the end of the day. Um, But um, certainly um, information that requires a lot of further debate and examination on your parts in the months ahead. Um, But just a couple of observations and concerns from the Alliance um, over the last couple of days. Um, In terms of the complex House Bill 2 process, Um, As currently drafted, uh, the House Bill 2 process um, seems to lack a a critically important big picture statewide perspective, um, which is essential to achieving a well-connected commonwealth. Um, And towards that end, currently in the draft, it proposes that project submissions would be done by local, local MPOs and regional planning authorities, but we would suggest that this body should have a more significant role in project submission. Um, In terms of congestion mitigation measure, um, particularly for the Category A um, in Northern Virginia, um, the Alliance as well as the Greater Northern Virginia Business Community have recommended a weight of at least 60% be assigned to congestion reduction. Um, That's 35% is totally inadequate. Mr. Secretary, you have said that facts, not ideology, um, should drive the process. However, weighting assignments will determine the outcomes of these projects. An assignment of only 35% for congestion reduction in the most congested regions of the state is more indicative of ideology rather than a factual approach to the needs. As to land use, um, Northern Virginia's land use practices and quality um, of development exceed those of most other comparable areas of the nation, and so does our transit usage. Our congestion is not the result of poor land use or lack of transit, but of a quarter of a century of failure of the state to provide adequate funding for infrastructure for an economy that was generating tens of thousands of new jobs and 40 percent of the Commonwealth's revenue. Again, assigning only 35% of congestion mitigation will surely ensure that congestion continues to grow and our regional economy continue to slow. Moving quickly to I-66 outside the Beltway, um, the Alliance commends the Commonwealth for taking an initiative to determine the potential costs and benefits of its own design-build approach. And hopefully this will incentivize everyone to sharpen their pencils. Um, but that can really only really be achieved with the release of the financials that we referred to yesterday, so we look forward to seeing that. Um, the details and assumptions in the study will require careful examination, but we can all agree that the ultimate objective must be the best deal for the taxpayer, but care must be taken to strike a careful balance and find a financing model that does not impede the Commonwealth's ability to address our other, more immediate needs in Northern Virginia and elsewhere while moving, um, continuing to move forward on the developments on I-66. So I'm almost out of time. Thank you.
15: Thank
0: you very much. Uh- Joe, and then um, we have a John L. Frost, if i said that correctly. Good
15: morning, Mr. Chairman and members of the Commonwealth Transportation Board. My name is Joe Vitalich, and I'm the Vice President of the Fairfax County Chamber of Commerce. Before I go any further, I'd like to thank uh, Ms. Nancy Smith uh, from the Alliance, and we stand with the Alliance on our comments on HB2. On the inter- issue of Interstate 66, we welcome the call from Secretary Lane for an open and vigorous public debate and discourse on the scope and financing of I-66. The Chamber's unfettered belief, and for that matter the belief of 15 other business associations, is that the private sector can deliver and has delivered time and time again innovative and entrepreneurial solutions to achieve the congestion relief that Northern Virginia businesses, its residents, are demanding and expecting. Like the Secretary, we too believe that a multimodal approach on I-66 is the best approach. Like the Secretary, we believe that the Commonwealth Transportation Board must act as good fiduciaries in that regard. And like the Secretary, we too want I-66 done right. The Chamber wants the private sector to compete and compete fairly. The Interstate 66 project presents a unique opportunity to attract private investment to the Commonwealth. (coughs) Properly structured, a P-3 will enable the Commonwealth to leverage the limited state and federal transportation dollars in the I-66 corridor and leave some for other important projects. The private sector can mitigate a substantial amount of risk to Virginia and minimize the impact of community and, frankly, save many of the homes that might otherwise not be in a VDOT model. We agree with Mr. Frerlin, Mr. Garzinski, and Mr. Dyke that the process needs to be open and transparent. Therefore, we are asking the Secretary to disclose and produce for the vigorous debate and discourse he referenced yesterday the full analysis and data behind the presentation, including the initial OP3 analysis. In fairness, the private sector cannot compete against some of the generalities that we heard yesterday, nor is it fair to leave it up just for three PowerPoint slides. Data is important. We owe it to Virginia to explore all of that in detail. With that analysis in front of us, we can then ask the tough questions. Will the state really be required to increase its debt capacity? How will the state mitigate traffic and revenue risk, a risk barely noted yesterday but identified by rating agencies and other organizations as the riskiest element of the project? What source of funding will be used to pay the state's bondholders if traffic doesn't meet projections, as is often the case? VDOT has never historically assumed traffic and revenue risk of this scale and complexity before. What commitment will be required from NVTA and other regional, uh, and and at the expense of other regional projects? Who will be responsible for cost overruns and delays, like we've seen on the projects like Springfield Interchange and Dulles Metro Rail? And where will that money come from? Finally, and most importantly, the media release assumes maximum upside for the state, with no downside at all, an unrealistic scenario with the reality of these tow projects. And quite frankly, we don't do that in business. We believe in the process and achieving what is best to unlock the new northern Virginia and the new Virginia economy through meaningful transportation solutions. We look forward to opening of the books and examining the data behind yesterday's information so that we can compete and we can find that, public, that private partner for the public if one works out for the Commonwealth. Thank you, Mr. Secretary.
0: Thank you very much. Mr. Elthroth and then Sheila Blaine. Good morning, sir. Uh,
16: Good morning, and thank you. I'm John Elsroth. I live at 8100 Reviton Court in Don Loring. Uh, I have two comments this morning on I-66 and Major Transportation Corridor. One is the P-3. I'm pleased that the enthusiasm for a P-3 option on I-66 has waned. It is difficult for me to see that the existing P3 deals have been or are a good deal for Virginia, especially the long term 70 to 80 year deals. If if you look back, back to 1935, 80 years ago, and consider the transportation conditions at that point and what changed in the meantime, you might say, what what are we going to look like 80 years forward? when considering that the roads <coughs> were built under the Defense Highway Act uh, are being sold to a foreign corporation, that to me is perhaps a questionable issue there. Uh, my second point is that this should be a rail, not a road option. Uh, Rob uh, Woodward's uh, comments notwithstanding, take a look out the window of this hotel. Look at the economic engine. The silver line is leading. Here at Tyson's and at Points West, move to the Orange Line, Merrifield, Ballston. Look at the red line over in Maryland. Look at the economic development that the rail option is driving. Uh, It is the future. Rail is the future. And, in fact, rail is now the future for communities that already have it. Um, so those are my two basic comments. I have one other uh, note uh, just on the, based on the comments. Um, better signal management. If you could get three re- green lights in a row, wouldn't that help congestion mitigation quite a bit? Thank you, gentlemen.
0: Thank you very much for your comments, sir. Sheila Blaine and then Carol Hook. Good morning, ma'am.
17: Good morning.
18: Thank you. Um, as a self-employed citizen, with three kids in a day-to-day life to manage, I'm busy. The news over the last few days about how I-66 might best be improved is at best confusing to me. At worst, it feels deliberately distracting. Secretary Lane had an op-ed one day in the Post and you're quoted the next day on the Metro section front page. And at 10 p.m. last night, I read yet another new piece. And the messages to me are a little confusing. So when I first sat down to write these comments, I'll I'll admit I was in defensive mode. Then I finally found time to delve into that 1,000-page Tier (laughs) 2 (laughs) assessment. So I do want to thank VDOT. It appears that they really did do some research about alternative modes of transportation. Overwhelmingly, people support multimodal transportation like extended metro, rapid bus transit, and VRE expansion. So my question is this. Why are these other modes put off mainly until after I-66 is already widened? VDOT has said that buses are part of the project, but will be fully implemented only once the road is widened. The same is true of metro expansion if the project plan actually needs room to do that. Why wouldn't you invest our money in buses before spending $3 billion on the road? VDOT could use the existing right lane to operate commuter buses all day, more during rush hour. Starting in Haymarket, some buses go nonstop all the way to the city, others stop at Tyson's, Fall Church, Arlington. The VDOT's Tier 2 assessment looked into 47 improvement concept scenarios involving a mix of general purpose lanes, managed lanes, metro extension, light rail, bus, rapid transit, and VRE extension. All of the top ten solutions involved extending metro. The Tier 1 study was supposed to investigate Orange Line Extension in 2014. In January, we were told it's off the table and it's not in any of the long-term plans, according to Lamata. The first phase of the Silver Line cost under $3 billion. That's about or less than the cost of the 66 proposed. Rodland Tunnel-limited capacity is a concern, I understand, but not all eastbound commuters are heading all the way to the city. Some trains could turn around at Tyson's or Falls Church. That's already happening on the Red Line and Silver Spring. I'd like to look back at Ashford and Leesburg and the toll road. I remember when ads encouraged people to move out there because the toll road was underutilized. Well, guess what? People did move out there, and the road got congested, and you know what the solution was? The Silver Line. The DDO isn't widening 66 inside the Beltway. I'd like to see a better effort to preserve communities and retain the toll in outside the Beltway as well. We live in one of the most affluent areas in the country, just outside the capital of our nation. Surely we have some of the brightest minds in urban planning. The younger generations want transit-oriented housing and walkable communities like Tyson's and Mosaic. Is more relaying, more lanes really the
17: best we can come up with? Thank you.
0: Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Carol Hook and then Brian Zelli.
19: Good morning. Good morning. I want to thank you all for allowing us to speak with you today. My name is Carol Hook, and my home is one of the homes that Virginia Department of Transportation has indicated will be taken for the proposed Transform 66 outside the Beltway. To some extent, however, <coughs> that's irrelevant. I'm not here today to appeal to your emotions, I'm here to discuss the concept and my experience with induced demand. Induced demand is a phrase used to capture the simple and intuitive notion that expansion of capacity will be met with an attendant increase in demand. In other words, build it, they'll come. As a native Californian, it surprises me that BDOT refuses to acknowledge or seriously engage with concept of induced demand. You see, for the first 66 years of my life, until I moved here two years ago, I lived in Southern California and have seen the mistakes Vita is making on a much larger scale. For instance, growing up in Southern California, I saw the 91 expand from a two-lane road into a 14-lane freeway. In this time, one thing remained constant. It was always congested. Every expansion, promise relief from the congestion, but instead, more people move further away from their place of employment for larger and cheaper housing, resulting in more commuters, which quickly outstripped and th- the additional capacity of the expanded roads. Even now, with two toll lanes in each direction, there is no relief from the congestion. No road I have ever seen can be built faster than homes can be built or people move. Unfortunately, they are now in a situation where they cannot add the transportation needed, such as the metro. We can even see this with the 495 hot lane; It's brought some relief for those who can afford to use the hot lanes, but all of the regular lanes appear as congested, if not more. For every one driver that takes toll or hot lanes, they will be replaced with another driver not using the hot lanes. Induced demand is not just fringe theory. It is well-documented phenomenon across many c- cities in the United States, such as LA and Atlanta. In contrast, such, such some cities, sorry, as in Paris, have actively reduced the number of traffic lanes. At first, there's pub- public outcry. that congestion would be, get significantly worse, but it did not. Instead, what happened in Paris, the congestion forced people to use public transportation. I understand that policymakers are always asked to solve the problems. Some problems cannot be solved. This is one we need to find a better solution for it than taking of mm-hmm. homes. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Brian Zelly uh, and then
0: Jeff from Romella.
20: Good morning. morning, Mr. Secretary and the Board. Um, I really appreciated your thoughtful comments on the pre 3 process yesterday and the desire to take a broader view with the process in the context of I-66, so that was very welcome news indeed. Uh, the current Transfer Transform 66 plans do not ref- uh, reflect the perspective that regional problems need regional solutions. Instead, the plans presented by the Commonwealth will severely impact and destroy the communities. Just outside the beltway, and the supposed beneficiaries of the plan, the car drivers, <coughs> will be forced to endure the permanent loss of a free lane that exists today, our, our beloved Green Arrow lane, or pay tolls with unlimited increases for decades to come. Rather than provide a consistent approach to Interstate 66, the plans offer our are, are choosing to transform the roadway outside the beltway remarkably differently than the plans for inside the beltway. With each new detail exposed about this transformation, we learned the project's true impact, including significant land taking and homes lost. The displaced are your neighbors who live in transit-oriented housing, who choose not to have long automobile commutes, many choosing not to drive at all. For them, the project won't just bring increased noise, polluted stormwater, and the loss of beloved yards and school recess fields. The current plans mean loss of pedestrian transit access, buffer zones of green space forever gone, and new walls constructed to speak from bedrooms. The permanent light of brightly lit flyovers towering up to 80 feet over the neighborhoods. Under VDOT's plans, the very residents who invested in the transit-oriented housing are the folks who will see their neighborhoods destroyed, their children displaced from schools, and their homes taken away, with many elderly and minority residents among those watching their homes destroyed. This cars-first approach will have a devastating effect on the people who did the very thing that the planners said was good, to live near our jobs and take public transportation. And for what purpose? To pave the way for more commutes, longer commutes, longer car trips, and even more sprawl into the diminishing open spaces of Northern Virginia. While the wealthy commuters might well be able to afford a pricey commute twice a day, the working class commuters will face the loss of that free sea claim forever. We know that Interstates 95 and 495 are at a standstill at rush hour today. Take a a, a look right over here at Tyson's northbound or southbound on 95 at the end uh, I'm sorry, during the the evening rush. You'll see that with the express lanes open and running right now. The congestion has increased at those endpoints. This plan is for pavement now with promises of some buses later. Is that the best way forward for our region? We urge a focus on moving people rather than just cars throughout the corridor. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Um, Jeff Vermella and then Kwong uh, Hai. or we, um, yeah, but, oh, thanks, yes. Thank you. Good morning, sir. Good morning.
21: Hello, my name is Jeff Vermella. I'm married and I have three daughters, two-year-old twins and a 17-year-old. I've been in Dunloring since 1996 and own a small IT company in McLean, Virginia. I've seen a lot of change and I understand the need for change. However, I'm asking that you transform 66 wisely. Dunloring was founded in 1886. It's a fragile community and is the earliest platted subdivision in Fairfax County and possibly in Virginia. We need to celebrate and protect this history. Virginia and Fairfax County are fortunate to have some really smart, business-minded people serving the government, and we thank you all for your public service. However, in the case of the Plan 66 transformation, I believe our public servants of VDOT have failed us. If we continue with the per- current proposed plans or alternatives, tax paying citizens of Virginia should be placed first and solution developed that is best in the best interest for us. As I understand it, based on the video on YouTube, uh, Secretary Lane, uh, Virginia legislation passed, uh, legislation was passed last year that mandated the CTB to prioritize and fund projects according to five criteria. I'm not going to read through them. Sounds like they're in, in some uh, level of, uh, change right now, but I'll I'll go right to it since I only have three minutes and looks like one minute, 40 seconds left. Congestion mitigation. VDOT has admitted at several public meetings that I have attended that current designs will not solve the congestion problem. In fact, the current design solution will actually cause more congestions. If commuters use the hot lanes as intended, they will come in greater numbers to the choke point at 495 and 66. If the hot lanes are ended prior to Vienna at the metro, and more commuters get on the metro or buses, the congestion at 495 and 66 choke points will be alleviated. In fact, the current proposal, which would eliminate the free green lanes that we've all heard about in favor of hot lanes, will make congestion worse instead of better. Hot lanes on 495 and 95 have conflicting data, uh, but current data shared to the press most recently by the Washington Post say it's not as successful as planned. So if less commuters use the hot lanes than use the free current green lanes, you're guaranteeing more congestion despite billions of dollars spent. Why would you want to continue investing in an approach that offers questionable success? Economic development. We're going to run out of time, but uh, in the economic development area, you can see that the development in the communities will be hampered as well as if other roads are not built because building them will cut into the profits provided by the hot lanes, so there's no economic development incentive there. Mobility. Mobility will be negatively affected, particularly in my community and those further out. There will be reticence on the part of either government or private entities running the toll lanes to develop other modes of transportation. Environmental, we can go through that. The return on investment. The return on investment for this project is much greater if the hot lanes are ended at the Vienna Metro. This project would cost oh, significant less. wrap up, sir.
0: Yes. Thank you for your time. Thank you here. very much for coming this morning. Yes, uh, and then we have Julie Perka.
22: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Kwong Hee from Dunloring. I'm here to explain why the Transform 66 project will be bad for residents, commuters and Northern Virginia. VDOT claimed that all the devastation to Dunloring, Vienna and Paul Church communities will benefit commuters by easing congestion. Yet, the more we learn about the project, the more we learn that the project will leave commuters worse off than they are today. Specifically, VDOT's proposal involves the elimination of one general purpose lane, The lane that many Virginians refer to as the Red X lane, shoulder lane, to create two hot lanes, the Transform 66 project will actually result in a decrease in general purpose lane during rush hour. In other words, commuters are forced into horrible decisions, sit in even worse traffic, or pay a hefty toll twice a day, adding thousands of dollars a year to to the cost of their commute. Moreover, VDOT has stated that it has no intent to expand I-66 inside the beltway until at least 2040. Even if some commuters do not care about paying thousands of dollars a year to use the hotline, the project is just funneling even more drivers into the same two-lane bottleneck inside the I-66 inside the beltway or the already congested 495. Why expand I-66 outside the beltway and make Fairfax into a parking lot? VDOT has a, a different treatment for Arlington and Fairfax. Arlington has consistently pushed back against VDOT, expanding I-66 to protect their precious uh, existing communities. VDOT continues to tell the public that they have reduced the po- possible animal, animal domain into only 12 to 18 homes. However, they always omit the other hundreds of partial land takings and thousands of um adjacent homeowners, they are negatively impacted along the 25 miles 66 corridor. V- VDOT can eliminate almost all of the complete and partial home takings by ending the hotlands between Chambers Road or- and Nutley Street. Mo- Metro is costly, but it is not an expense. It is an investment that creates new economic development areas like Tyson Corner and Mosaic District. Business wants to be close to the metro so that workers can reach their office by metro, and people want to live near metro so they can easily commute to work. To begin with, extending the Orange Line metro to Fair Oaks, where there are thousands of existing parking spaces. <coughs> Truly reduce the car from the road and fix I-66. Please correct this before it's too late. Please be within the existing right-of-way. Do not let me don't take lanes or homes like they are free like mine. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Heath.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Julie Herka and then uh, Sean or Suey Lee. Good morning, ma'am.
23: Morning. Thank you, Secretary Lane, for investigating the financing of the I-66 project as reported in the Washington Post yesterday. I have been wondering, since you announced the plan to have VDOT toll I-66 inside the beltway, why you would treat 66 outside the beltway differently. Outside we've been told it will likely be a P3 with a private company paying $1 billion of the $3 billion and then collecting all tolls as they do on 95 and 495 for the next 75 years. I see when in traffic on 495 and 95 that the investor-owned express lanes are not a solution to congestion but feed off it. I understand the private investor's expedience in securing more lanes on 95 and the desire to do so on 66 before taxpayers figure out how bad this is for the taxpayers and commuters of Northern Virginia. I sit in Fairfax County budget meetings listening to discussions on ways to increase revenue and then read full-page express lane ads selling Northern Virginia's commuters their time. Why P3s are a bad idea when it comes to building toll roads. The business plan depends on low-occupancy vehicles. Virginia has to compensate the private investor if too many HOV cars or buses equal too little toll revenue. Commuters pay twice, once for the toll, and then again if not enough cars are paying tolls. And in the case of I-66, a third time, as the plan calls for rebuilding bridges and infrastructure that were just completed for the, nine, for the 495 toll lanes and at the Loring and Vienna Metro stations. P-3s are a bad idea because of the 75-year contracts, the no-compete clauses, and the 10K or high, higher tolls annually for commuters, an option most commuters can't afford who live in Centerville or Haymarket. In yesterday's post article, Mr. Gifford from GMU stated that the private sector has a fairly good track record on these types of projects. It is in their best interest to do so. For I-66, it's also in P-3's best interest to do unnecessary construction, like redoing the 495-66 interchange to connect to their current 495 investment. But this is not in the best interest of neighborhoods, the environment, commuters, and taxpayers of Virginia. Yes, what an ideal revenue risk project, in Mr. Gifford's words, and in Secretary Lane's investigation has discovered. Like I-66 inside the Beltway, let's keep the revenue in Northern Virginia. In Virginia, a foreign investor is being allowed to squeeze commuters for the next 75 years, the majority of whom work for the federal government. Please don't repeat P-3 mistake on I-66.
0: Thank you, ma'am for comments. Ms. Lee and then uh, Dan Holmes.
2: Good morning, ma'am. Good morning.
17: I'm Sylvie from Dunloreng, I'm here to emphasize the devastating impact on Dunloreng, Vienna, and Fortress Residency communities as a result of the I-66 outside the Beltway project. The project will severely impact or destroy our transit-oriented communities. These are your neighbors, such as my family, who live in transit-oriented housing. We chose to live in a smaller home and pay higher taxes to avoid driving and traffic congestion. We are the people who get up in the morning and take the metro to work. We don't drive. However under Vito's revised plan hundreds of people including myself will still lose our homes and lands completely or partially our children's school will still be lost partially the natural buffers the tree buffers between our homes and IC6 will be removed the project will bring increased noise and air pollution from years of construction and the new flyover ramp. the new walls will be constructed just feet from your bedroom and several huge, 80-feet, noisy flyover rains will travel over neighborhoods. The above negative impacts would decrease home values and check the revenues in Dundurin, Vienna and Fortress communities. The project would significantly undermine the investments from the Staphex county, county and developers in creating workable communities in Fairfax The very residents who invested in transit-oriented housing are the people who will see all their neighborhoods destroyed, our homes condemned, and our children moved to other schools. Thousands will face permanent aftermath left behind. The attached map that you see on your handout um, shows that there is no change has been made for the five homes and the Stanwood Elementary School in Loring, based on the revised plan from last week. The five homes remain to be taken completely. I'm one of the, one of the five homeowners. All our homes are within five minutes of walking distance to the Loring Metro Station and Stanwood School. Given the unbeatable transit convenience, it is unrealistic for VDOT to tell us that they will find us a comparable home that will meet the same needs that we have today. Also attached, you'll see a picture from a child to Governor McCollish asking the government not to take his home. May I ask Secretary Lane, Commissioner Kilpatrick, Director Mitchell, and all the CTB board members here, have you ever lived with the fear and stress that Vito is going to take you home and make you move to another place that you may not like and that may not meet your needs? Would you let Vito take your home, part of your children's school field and parks, and turn it into hotlands with no guarantee of great lot of relief? It is not reasonable to use eminent domain against us, the very transit-oriented residents. Even one home taken is too many. Please build within the existing right away and invest in mass transit options to get cars off the road. Thank you for listening to our voice.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, ma'am. Dan Holmes uh, and then Sonia Brehe.
24: Good afternoon. My name is Dan Holmes. I'm with the Piedmont Environmental Council, and I appreciate this opportunity to address the board. I'm here to speak on the HB2 implementation and want to raise several concerns that we have as we move forward. One is uh, we believe that there needs to be an increase to the weight on environmental quality and land use factors. Uh, environmental quality is the lowest-ranked factor in each of the four area types. Uh, Virginia's natural resources are central to our health and economy. Moreover, impacts to environmental and historic resources that are ignored or inadequately considered early can often translate into major delays uh, and increased costs for projects later in development, as was seen with uh, Route 460 and the By county Parkway. The HB2 process should put greater weight on these items so that proposed projects with serious environmental problems can be identified before significant resources are invested. We urge you to increase the weight allocated to environmental quality to 20% in all four uh, area types. In addition, the importance uh, to the link between transportation and land use has been increasingly recognized, including the impact of development patterns and the cost and effectiveness of transportation projects. Um, the potential to also spur environmentally fiscally costly sprawl we can no longer afford to overlook these links. The draft policy guide places too much emphasis on congestion reduction and fails to adequately reflect how some of these projects can lead to diminished return on investment if not all issues are considered. Experience has demonstrated that some projects merely shift congestion uh, and increase sprawl and therefore overall congestion for the region. To be consistent with the approaches taken for other criteria, we suggest that an approach would focus on at least three types of impacts and add the points for each to the score for impacts of sensitive resources that would equal half of the environmental quality score. These three impacts would be wetlands and streams, park, recreation, land, and wildlife refuges, and uh, historic resources. Perhaps one of the most important factors that has to be considered here is congestion relief and, uh, and economic development. Um, and we just want to make sure that as we proceed that, that things that will actually uh, be are now being viewed as potentially solving our congestion issues may actually increase the problem. Specifically, um, when we're talking about building air in areas, new roads in areas that would open up new lands for development further away from where these job centers are, it is a recipe for disaster. We've seen it before, we're going to see it again. Um, with regard to economic development, economic development factors should assess both positive and negative economic impacts of proposed project in order to provide an accurate assessment of the true net impact of the economic development project. If economic development factor only considers new businesses created, it will give a highly distorted and accurate assessment of the impact. For example, agriculture is the leading industry in the commonwealth. When combined with forestry, we have a total economic impact of $70 billion, providing you, more Mr. than jobs.
0: Okay, thank you very Brighi. much, sir. Thank you. Uh, Sonia Brehe uh, and then Dennis Drinker. Good morning, ma'am.
25: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for uh, taking the time to hear our comments. Uh, my name is Sonia Brehe. I live in Falls Church. I am a mother of three in a biking household. Uh, we commute to work, we try to commute with the kids to school, and often for running errands around town. Um, So I'm here because I wanted to express that to truly transform the I-66 corridor for the future, we need long-term, smart solutions that are truly multimodal, not just for cars, but we need to maximize public transit, biking, and walking. We appreciate the incorporation of bicycle and pedestrian facilities at the I-66 crossings. That's going to be a huge help with maintaining that connectivity in the neighborhood. However, the proposed Tier 2 environmental impact statement does not include the parallel bike trail um, and lacks details about the connectivity to transit stations along the corridor. A shared-use trail along I-66 will provide local residents and commuters transportation options, enabling them to shift more trips to walking and biking. Um, A parallel trail along I-66 will provide direct access for biking and walking from those neighborhoods to schools like Stenwood Elementary School or Oakton High School, to suburban centers like the Merrifield, Fairfax Corners, and Fair Oaks, and access to metro rail stations at Dunloring and Vienna, and future stations as it gets extended out towards Centerville. Um, Studies by the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit uh, Authority show that investments in biking and uh, pedestrian accessibility to transit stations can significantly increase transit ridership and at a cost that's much less than building costly parking structures. Um, An I-66 trail would also provide regional connectivity to the WOD and the Custis Trail inside the Beltway providing um, residents in central Fairfax County connections to work, to bike to work throughout um, the county and beyond. And as we heard earlier, data shows that 25% of our county residents are within that trail benefit area. So I urge you to please invest in safe, walkable, bikeable communities by maximizing our investments in biking and walking, especially the parallel trail, as part of our solutions to this I-66 corridor. Thank you.
5: Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Dennis
26: Drinkard and then uh, Michael Lambert. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Secretary Lanes, board members. Uh, I'm here, uh, Dennis Drinkard, speaking on behalf of the Committee for Dulles. Committee for Dulles is a dynamic community of business and business leaders, policymakers, and dedicated <coughs> individuals. We represent businesses that have in excess of 10,000 employees. Founded in 1966, the committee plays a pivotal role in making Dulles International Airport the premier air travel service provider for the National Capital Region, and an economic feeder for the business community. We are the only business-focused organization in the United States that supports an international airport. The Committee for Dulles is dedicated to achieving the full potential of the airport and the economic growth of this region. The Committee considers transportation one of its top priorities and improving our regional transportation network essential for continued prosperity. The Committee for Dallas commends the Virginia General Assembly and the Commonwealth Transportation Board for creating a process to objectively evaluate road and transit projects. We believe this evaluation process will ensure that straight state transportation resources are invested in an objective performance-based manner to reduce congestion and promote economic development. However, the Committee for Dallas is concerned that the implementation of HB2 has become considerably more complex through the inclusion of safety, accessibility, environmental quality, and land use considerations. These have resulted in less emphasis being assigned to two measures of greatest importance to state legislators, citizens, and businesses, which are congestion reduction and economic development. The fact that Northern Virginia Transportation Authority has been charged by the General Assembly with producing a regional transportation plan with the primary objective of reducing congestion to the greatest extent practical and to prioritize HB 2313 on projects that are expected to provide the greatest congestion relief relative to the cost of the project. Clearly in the case the legislator intends the passage of HB 2 was to assign major weight to congestion reduction, especially for highly congested areas such as Northern Virginia. Therefore, we strongly recommend that a minimum of 50 points be awarded to congestion to reduction for Northern Virginia category A and 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 implement that at the minimum for that I appreciate your consideration for that
0: thank
24: you Mr. thank Mr. you for the timer yeah up there. that's
26: very good
0: thank you uh, Michael Lambert uh, and then Stu Whitaker
27: thank you for providing this comment period my name is Mr. Lambert yes, I'm here to voice my opposition to aspects of the I-66 expansion plan my chief concern is the proposed annexation of homes and property along the corridor and the adjacent Gallows Roadway. My property is not one of these proposed homes, so my objection here is largely a moral one. I believe that a high standard should be used when we, we do these kind of things, and that the use of this kind of power shouldn't be done in the interest of private-public partnerships that are popular here at Virginia. My concern with the proposed widening is that it will ne- ne- negatively impact the value of the revitalization that is in my neighborhood at Dunmorey and which we have enjoyed over the past decade. 15 years ago, my neighborhood turned over from gentrified housing development to one filled with young families, new residents, building new homes. Property values have been on the rise and they continue to go up. This is not an area filled with blighted urban homes. This makes the proposed seizure of land for the interstate all the more troubling. We've seen significant redevelopment in the Merrifield Town Center to which we have access. The community is designed to be pedestrian friendly. Businesses in the Merrifield area depend upon high property values and net incomes of those who inhabit these neighborhoods. My neighborhood is an important residential corridor for the Tysons Commun- Commercial District, and a wider 66 would inhibit pedestrian traffic, delay, and perhaps deprioritize multimodal transportation options in our neighborhood. A wider gallows would also serve to encourage vehicular traffic at the expense of pedestrian, bus, and bike access. A beltway is two miles north of Gallows Road. It's the proper roadway for high traffic and not Gallows. VDOT has also had minimal success in reducing noise pollution along interstate routes. Hopefully you can appreciate a little of my skepticism that widening 66 will reduce noise pollution in my neighborhood. My daughter's local elementary school, Stenwood, is located right next to the I-66 interstate. At this moment, she's taking her annual standards of learning test today. The school was recently renovated and I doubt that the noise abatement planning was accounted for in that renovation it, especially if 66 is wider. It's certainly not for the proposed flyover lanes which arise above most sound abatement structures. Its fields will also likely be affected by the proposed land annexation and it's possible that the school could lose its green fields so the gym and blacktop areas are the only areas for recess and PE options available to students. So I find it ridiculous that we can require private developers to create green space as part of development efforts, but we cannot do this when we develop roads. Southside Park along I-66 is where we enjoy our town uh, 4th of July fireworks display and is a part of the affected area. I don't believe widening I-66 near Gallows will improve traffic on I-66. There's no metro service beyond Nutley, so as a result all of that traffic is dumped onto the interstate. And I find it ridiculous that That's one of the I-66 proposals that I've heard about would permanently eliminate metro expansion beyond Vienna. Sir, I would ask that. That's for your time,
0: sir. Thank you very much for coming today. Mr. Whitaker. Stu Whitaker. Morning, sir.
28: Morning, sir. Good morning. My name is Stuart M. Whitaker. I'm a financial economist by training, a businessman by experience, and the founder of Transitors.com, which is a transit users group. I was delighted with news reports of the analysis of financing alternatives, public versus private, or some combination thereof, announced and presented, according to these reports, by Secretary Lane here yesterday. I agree that it is the responsibility of the Commonwealth To pursue a strategy that is in the best interest of its citizens and uh, that the Commonwealth should not automatically choose one financing approach uh, or another. I also agree that this is an important matter deserving thorough and transparent review. But financing isn't the primary matter at hand. It's only a secondary matter. The primary matter is how do we, isn't, uh, how do we pay what we pay for what we buy? The primary matter is what, in fact, will we buy. We know a lot about transportation. Recent research has told us two new things about the role of transportation in our economy. First, researchers at the University of Chicago and the University of California at Berkeley have estimated that the, quote, housing crunch represents more than a one trillion dollar annual drain on our economy and that high quality transit can play an important role in reducing that cost. Second, a recent study at Harvard found that commuting time is, quote, the single strongest factor in the odds of escaping poverty. The longer an average commute in a given county, the worse the chances of lower-income families there moving up the ladder. The relationship between transportation and social mobility is stronger than that between social mobility and several other factors, like crime, elementary school test scores, and the percentage of two-parent families in a community. So while the project financing alternatives, a matter of secondary importance, are being offered for careful examination and scrutiny, the actual project plan, which is of primary importance, has been presented as a fait accompli. Three general lanes, two toll lanes, with projected public transit ridership of only 10 percent. The plan is inconsistent with what we have learned from researchers at Chicago, Berkeley, and Harvard, and this approach is in stark contrast to the approach being followed concerning the project financing alternatives. I urge the CTB to pursue the same thorough and transparent approach to the I-66 plan as it is pursuing with respect to the I-66 project financing. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. That is all of the speakers that I have signed up. Is there anyone else that would like to uh, address the Commonwealth Transportation Board today in the public comment? Okay, seeing none, thank you all the speakers who did uh, speak this morning. We will make sure that any handout gets uh, to all the CTV members uh, to be read. We do very much appreciate your comment. So with this, then I'm gonna now suspend the formal session uh, and uh, we're going to go back into our um, uh, workshop session. So this is a formal suspension of the uh, action workshop, and we will now continue uh, calling the session the resumption of the workshop. Uh, what we're hoping to do is maybe get through uh, this uh uh, the next half hour or so we'll see how it goes we do have one session we have to have to have so we can vote on it in the work session but mr donahue we'll have you come back up and think where we left off was the uh, the actual scoring of the slides uh,
29: yes sir mr chairman right. and members of the board just a refresher we had talked about the top 10 projects using the raw score we had talked about the top 10 projects using the relative score looking at total cost and we are kind of walking through this top ten here where we looked at the HP2 cost kind of uh, looking at the leveraging and again just as a reminder where staff uh, what we're really recommending to the board is that we not give you just one relative cost either looking at a relative score excuse me looking at just total cost or HP2 as we've gone through this pilot exercise we think both uh, items are of equal importance for the board because one just kind of tells you overall how effective cost effective is this project and the other kind of gives you a sense for whether or not we're able to leverage additional resources when we're considering that project, which is what the HB2 score gives you. And one of the things you're kind of, you know, highlighting here is this project number three, and I think this is just a really indicative project as the board thinks about the differences between raw score, cost effectiveness, and leverage score. This project on just a raw score basis is the 33rd out of 38, so it's in that bottom quartile of projects. When you look at the relative benefit, it jumps up to ten, and so it's kind of in that second, you know, quarter of projects. And then when we consider whether or not we're leveraging local dollars, in this instance, local funds are paying for just over half of this project cost. It then actually goes up to five, and so it's in that top quarter or highest scoring quarter of projects. And so this just really is to demonstrate to you all. The importance of looking at the relative costs, but also understanding the leverage, the leveraging of funds that can happen, and how that's something we believe is of value for the board.
13: Mr. President, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think it's, we must point out that these scores were relative to the HB2 cost scores, were mostly revenue sharing and safety. That's sector. correct. Right. Um, once the regional monies play into this, these scores could drastically change. And um, I understand we we decided to give you both, both give scores. both scores, so we punted a little bit uh, on that. But um, I do think that we need to pay attention to that as we go along because. The HB two score will be subject to manipulation. They just will, and and we need, we, and that's not necessarily a bad. Thing. I mean, that can change a project to whether you build it or not, right? Because I mean, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. We need we need to pay attention to that, and so um, uh, I, I just wanted to raise that. Yep. And that's all, Mr. Chair. Uh, uh, just a clarification, Bill's statement. My understanding was the statute does not permit the regional taxes from being a
0: part of the analysis. Is that, is that correct, Nick? Uh, Mr.
29: Chairman, Mr. Karzinski, I think what the statute says is that if the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority or the Hampton Roads Transportation Accountability Commission chooses to fully fund a project using the regional dollars, that project is exempt from being required to be analyzed under the House Bill 2 process. What it does not say is if they wish to co-fund a project with the state, how we would evaluate the relative benefit of that project from a cost perspective. And I think from staff's perspective, we have two minds and we think they're equally important. And so the first is really understanding what is the total cost benefit of this project because at the end of the day, taxpayers in some form are in fact paying that cost. All the dollars government has to invest come from taxpayers at different levels of government or through tolls. On the other hand here, we also think we want to encourage the co-investment of local dollars, regional dollars, and federal funds under the control of regional entities with the state where we can so that we can leverage more resources into projects the state believes is worthwhile to invest in. And that's why looking at the House Bill 2 relative cost-benefit we think is also very important
13: for the state to consider. I follow up on that, just 66, for example. How are we going to treat, if we do a PPTA that requires some public subsidy, the total cost and the HB2 cost? Because the total cost, in that sense, is my problem.
29: Uh,
5: Mr. Chairman
13: you know, The payback Gray, is, I guess you could look at it that way. Mm-hmm. So.
29: Uh, and so the way we, just speaking offhand and you know, subject to thinking about this more, but just a quick reaction there is, there would be two scores. One would be the raw score divided by $2.1 billion, and the other would be the raw score, depending on which procurement option the Commonwealth chooses, divided by whatever that remaining public upfront funding is.
13: So the PPTA will have to go through House Bill 2 as well? Uh, the project does, yeah. It's got okay.
0: federal, it's got, uh, um, <laughs> Governor Mung mentioned it, we need to, it needs to be scored. Right. Any project that takes statewide, state money, mm-hmm. has to be scored. If it's $1 on it, it's got to be scored.
13: Well, Mr. Chairman, with the the emphasis that you rightfully placed on the process, how does HB2 and the analysis of 66 uh, correlate to the process you've created? Because it would seem that until we do HB2, and we're assuming that it's going to score well, but until it scores, are your hands I mean, that's yeah.
0: That's why it was important where I had uh, Director Mitchell and Charlotte to do, we, give us a project to score. I don't mean that to, mm-hmm. I mean, we, that was it. We, we could not go down a path until we had a project to score. I think we have enough information now to have a project to score uh, in that, in, 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 because we've gone through this process. And I know some of the public got, uh, uh, you know, the, as we went through the NEPA process and just looking, bearing it down, but yes, it, it, now I don't think it's going to curtail us because I think we have the information now. We can, as our scoring comes up that we can score, but yes, we have to score uh, 66, both inside and outside the belt. We have to be scored. Uh, the other thing, Mr. Chairman,
29: going back to the slides here is I think you see a greater. Uh, You see all four area types again recognized when we're looking at the relative benefit either from total cost or HB2 cost, both in the top 10 as well as in the bottom 10 here. And so I know, again, um, Mr. Whitworth referenced kind of the raw scores, and what he said is 100 percent right about that raw score. What we've seen, though, is a lot of the projects that we evaluate under C and D tended to be a little less costly some of the projects in the A and B category types. And so that's created a greater mix kind of throughout this 38. Again, I can't promise that when we score all the projects this fall and winter, it's going to turn out with, the, you know, the same kind of mm-hmm. mix we happen to have this time. But I do think this shows you that as it's currently structured, staff don't think there's a bias towards any particular area type. But Mr. Rose, we are going to keep looking at category B there just to make sure um, that's not true.
30: Um, this is more of an, <clears throat> an observation. I'm wondering if it's true that as the revenue sharing proj- um, program is going to be phased out or diminished um, over the next few years, localities or could localities contribute to a project, sure. and that would you know so that allows them to
29: participate. So it many, actually many
0: localities do. Because so they're, they're able to, to the project, you know, too. so
29: it makes them more competitive than the yeah. HB2 cost. Mr. Chairman, Ms. Valentine, that was exactly the intent of showing that HB2 cost, because right. in a way, if they choose to co-invest with yeah. the state, they can make at least one of their project
0: scores uh, yeah, higher does. by virtue of that investment. It doesn't
13: have to be you know, revenue
0: sharing. I mean, if they want to contribute other monies, too. So uh, I think we'll see that mix, but that's exactly right. It, it, if we can have, as this, Ms. Freeland well, they think we can put... 20% of the cost up, that makes the score better.
31: Why wouldn't we want them to do it?
30: And, you know, I was just asking for the clarification, because there is a concern among some localities that, you know, without revenue sharing, there has not been access to transportation dollars. And, in fact, this is, this is another way for them to do it, even as the mm-hmm. revenue sharing program goes down. Uh,
29: to Mr. Chairman, members of the... Uh, <coughs> I'm just curious, what,
31: what does the score have to be for the project to move?
29: Mr. Malvin, the score has to be whatever the board thinks it needs to be to move forward. That's not something a staff I can tell you. The scores are going to be the scores and um, as the secretary has pointed out several times, you know, let's go to the the lowest scoring project here has a uh, relative benefit of total cost of 0.03. I guess the score has to be that or higher in this particular pilot round because you can fund any project that you choose to. Again, I expect the you know, real impetus behind this process, or there's several, but one of the main ones is the transparency and accountability. So the public's gonna know that's what that score is if you choose to fund the lowest scoring project. And I suspect just as we had a lot of people commenting today on, you know, projects we're considering, I expect if the board funded the lowest scoring project, we'd have a lot of members in other parts of the public, excuse me, show up in other parts of the state and say, I wanna know why you did this. Your own analysis says this is the lowest scoring project that you could have funded. So uh, moving forward, where we are today is we have taken notes of all the kind of remaining issues that the board members have raised. Um, You know, some of those key ones are the weighting of congestion and land use in the category A frameworks. We also are going to try and work in reliability into the economic development measure. There are two or three other things that I took notes on yesterday that I don't have on the top of my head now. What we would ask of uh, from the members is that in the next two, you know, four or five days, please email me with any other remaining issues that you have with this what we're going to do as staff is go back and kind of take those into account and send you a week or so after those five days kind of like the process you'll be asked to vote on in june taking into account these final remaining concerns um, that we've heard and again as the chairman has stressed this isn't the end we're going to keep as staff looking at the wording to make sure we can fine-tune it we're going to keep testing stuff We're going to figure out ways to try and, you know, make sure that you can score these projects faster and do other things. It really kind of creates a pivot point for us internally to move from development to implementation, which I think is something we need to have so that Commissioner Kilpatrick and Director Mitchell's staff can go out, can work with the local governments, tell them with certainty this is going to be the process, kind of the first round, so that they have, you know, projects to analyze and score and local governments really understand (coughs) what they should be putting in this October excuse me, August and September, so that we can score them, you know, through the winter.
0: And some of the projects that we have defunded, you know, in the plan, those are developed projects that will be scored. But that doesn't mean they're the only ones. There could be other projects that should be scored, too. So.
2: I
13: have uh, one question I've been holding till the end here. I think we've reached it. Have we changed the policy about the... Uh, CTB members able to present a project for scoring.
0: What, what, what we ha- we have not adopted a policy. What we've recommended is is that uh, there would be an opportunity for a CT, you know, whether it's one or two projects a year, for the CTB member to make a uh, a um, uh, you know a proposal he'd like to have. Uh, and if it's five or six, we may take a vote on which one or two we want to put in. In there, I, I think we did hear loud and clear, and it gets back to scoring and in the independence and the whole bit. I do think we have to reserve the right, if we think there's a project that's just been missed, to reserve the right to, to, to put one in. I mean, I, I, there's a board and that. On the other hand, I don't think it should be just you know, it is us that are putting the projects in. No,
13: I, I agree with in, that. I just want to make sure there was there, there's in the a res- draft. There was no
0: opportunity for that. And you know, yeah. yeah we, we've re- yes, we've put that and We've reserved the right now. Uh, I, I don't expect them to be 14 of them put in. <laughs> in other words, everybody. But I do expect if we think and that, I think it would be subject to the board saying, yeah, that's one when you should score. I agree. Mr. Wentworth? Uh,
13: will the districts uh, have the capability of uh, stress testing a potential project To the score to know how they might want to uh format that project uh, in, in other words will they have the capacity to know pretty much what a project will score before it's officially presented
29: mr chairman mr whitworth i think what a district will have the ability to do is to understand the aggregate benefits but again the score is based is relative Mm-hmm. based on the other projects that get submitted by different localities in that district or other regional entities across the Commonwealth and so they won't be able to say on the congestion score are we gonna be closer to a hundred or to zero but they will be able to say we think we can reduce this many hours of person delay and increase person throughput by this much the thing that they're not going to know is what are the other potential projects elsewhere in the state that might get submitted so they'll be able to do some analysis but um They won't be able to kind of give it that raw type of score that we see today, because they'll need to know every other project in the Commonwealth to be able to do that.
13: I was thinking in terms of uh, a decision that has to be made on a local basis. We're going to need to put X amount of money into this thing if we want to have a decent score.
5: Mr.
29: Chairman, I think what they'll be able to do is, you know, the staff will be able to work with them on the crash modification factors and tell them, well, if you actually add this change to your project, that will increase your safety score, or if you we think right now the way this is designed, you might be able to more narrowly tailor that design, excuse me, you know, this component isn't really necessary, and that can reduce the cost by a million dollars, which will increase your score. So I think they can really help them on the projects. The thing I want to be clear that I don't think they'll be able to do with certainty. They're not going
0: to be able to tell them exactly what to do with the project
13: or
29: exactly how it's going to score.
13: But, again, as you
0: talked earlier, as this process goes on and on, the same way VDOT works with the local staff, now, but they'll understand. They're already beginning, because we've included a lot of VDOT in, in this analysis, they're beginning to understand how to shape the projects, you know, and not, not just for scoring, but quite frankly, I think inherent in this is also but they, you know, you use the money as so,
13: uh Mr. Malvin, how long is it going to take to score a project?
29: Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Malvin, we're going to make it take less time than it took this time when we have more <laughs> right. projects the next time. Uh, it, it took too long this time, but it was also, you know, we we're going through this the first time. We found out some of our, you know, uh, questions weren't written narrowly enough, so we got too many wide-range options and the pilot testing is really going to help us create a more streamlined scoring process in the future. We still have to do some more work on the GIS tool and some other things. Um, It's going to take some time um, and it's going to take some staff resources, uh, but we are going to make sure that there's a QAQC process built in. We're probably going to try and uh, recommend to you all that we use two to three teams, probably three teams, to score this, which should allow a lot more concurrent uh, work to move forward. This time it was literally Chad and, you know, four other people who did the bulk of this scoring. And I, th- I think we need four people or several teams of Chad and four people doing that scoring for this to be a more efficient process and for us to have the time for QAQC and to allow the locals to see those scores as we move forward. So uh, it, it is a burden, um, but we're working to make it less of one. But at the same time, I think it's very important. And it's going to cost some money, but I think it's important that we do this as we look at how to spend the $800 million that's available.
0: Okay, so we've gotten through
13: uh, what we'll be doing in
0: June uh, is uh, adopting this uh, format. Uh, that Nick will then move into scoring, and then uh, I'm sure we'll have updates as that's going. But when we have it, I plan to have a whether well, it's an all-day or two-day, whatever, a planning session where we all meet uh, and review the scores and have to, you know give and take back and forth as to how uh, that uh, if that's working the way was envisioned
29: in that. And hey, Mr. Chairman, real quick before I sit down, I just want to remind you, we, uh, in addition to Steve Pitter's presentation on the TISDAC recommendations, we do have two individuals who flew in today to talk about the Northern Virginia TDM plan, if we can try and work that. I didn't hear that. I sorry. Hear you. We have two, <laughs> I'm sorry, this computer not <laughs> the microphone. Uh, in addition to Mr. Pitter's presentation, we do have two
0: individuals who flew in yeah. and were sent to the board today. what yeah, uh, and I was going to get to the uh, – we're going to go through the, uh, that. Uh, but I want to make sure we were uh, finished up here with House Bill 2. So uh, there are two that we have to get through, the tiered capital allocation review, because that's going to be voted on. Um, and then we have a group here, uh, as Mr. Donahue pointed out, Uh, Why don't we uh, entertain, let's have this on the big data. Yeah, why don't we do that now? Um, And so that way they can uh, go on their way or or, uh, not hold them up anymore since they flew in directly for this. And after that, we'll then... um, either take a quick break for lunch or see where Mr. Pittard is, uh, depending on how long this takes.
32: morning. Secretary Lane and members of the board, uh, thanks for having us this morning. We're delighted to be here, not only because we both have roots to the Commonwealth. Laura was born here, and my daughter was born here when I lived here for about 20 years. Uh, but because this is a really exciting project. Um, I hope you'll be as excited about it once we describe it to you as as we are. It's really, I think, something that is going to be nationally significant as well as significant to Northern Virginia and the Commonwealth. that. So first we'll just introduce ourselves and then I'm going to do the beginning part of the presentation. Laura will follow up. Um, I think we'll get through this in about 15 minutes and have a little time for questions if that's about right for you. So uh, my name is Eric Sundquist. I work at the University of uh, Wisconsin on a project called the State Smart Transportation Initiative. It's about a five-year-old project. It engages state DOTs and transportation <coughs> officials from around the country on a volunteer basis. We don't have all 50 states, but we really want the states that are interested in making change, and um, so we have a self-selected bunch, including Virginia. This is a little out of date. We now have Florida, um, but we convene folks around best practices and we do some technical assistance, and we also have uh, webinars and so forth on our website, www.hsusti.us.
33: And thank you for having us as well. I'm Laura Shul. I'm the CEO of Streetlight Data. We are a big data analytics company that creates data assets to analyze mobility behavior, to help policymakers, engineering providers, and all sorts of other actors understand what is happening on a transportation network and implement policy that is better for that deeper understanding. So what we do is we pull data from, uh, I think now, 125 million mobile devices across the U.S., as you know, as you're carrying around mobile devices, it's doing a lot of locational things. It's pinging GPS to get you directions to where you need to go. It's pinging locations so you can you know, look up the nearest restaurant. In addition, most new vehicles now have geolocated services within them. We are taking that data, we are anonymizing it, we're bringing it together from many different sources, and we're using that to understand more deeply than ever was available before what's happening on the ground. So the slide you see before you is just a few minutes of data. I believe we're in Prince William County just the raw stuff. As you can see, the data from the vehicles is collecting very clearly on the roads. You can begin to see the offerings. You can begin to see the core patterns of mobility. And that's the raw data that we're going to use to create some of the really innovative and powerful metrics that we're going to show you in just a few minutes.
32: So the project that we're working on now is focused on Northern Virginia. Um, I'm going to just give you a brief outline on it so you have sort of a sense of what it is we're talking about and then we'll kind of back up and deal with some of the concepts. But, uh, we're going to focus on the demand side of uh, the equation, uh, We are, going to, which for, for the present purposes is almost anything that isn't a big highway or transit capacity project. So everything else is on the table. Um, Following on some of the HB2 conversation, we're going to focus on accessibility. Um, so that's trip making and where people are trying to go, what their origins and destinations are, rather than just speed on a, a road segment corridor, which is part of accessibility but only part. Uh, we're going to focus on personal trip making. We could look at commercial vehicles and freight and that sort of thing, but this is really to focus and have a, a meaningful project here. We're going to. Eliminating some of that, um, but one aspect of that is that um, some transportation planning, my background is in transportation planning, um, you have these large regional models and you often look at long distance trips and you're trying to facilitate mobility across long distances. But one of the motiv- motivating factors here is that every time somebody goes from an origin to a destination, that's utility for them. That is, you know, they're getting to work or they're getting to the store or whatever. If they go one mile or 10 miles or 100 miles to do that, it's still a trip. It's still the same utility. And so one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked are those short trips, both the value of them and sometimes the cost of them. So I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean in that. Um, As Laura alluded to, and her firm is going to be helping us on this, we're going to be using big data-driven analytics um, that sort surmount some of the boundaries that we've had in terms of dealing with synthetic models and old-fashioned uh, diary-collected travel information or no information at all. Um, and then we're going to use this data as a really integral part of, uh, of our outreach. So it's going to, um, there's a lot of people already doing TDM and all kinds of things in Northern Virginia. Um, we're going to engage them with this data, which is not just going to be a report that plunks out and says, here are the 10 things you should do. Um, Now, uh, just the the remainder of this is going to, I'm going to take number one here and really talk about TDM and a little bit more about the concepts that we're trying to explore. Laura is going to then talk about the data part, and then we just, we'll talk just at the end. We don't know exactly what our results are going to be, obviously, but we can sort of generalize about them and then talk a little bit about some benefits that are going to come out of this that aren't just about TDM. so, so, why the demand side? I, it sounds like from the discussion that you guys were having this morning that you were um, pretty well steeped in, in this issue, so I'm not going to, like, go on and on about it, but in our field we usually deal with supply solutions, you know, more capacity, um, whether it's whatever mode, um, but, and, and now we're moving into managed lanes and so forth that are a form of TDM, Basically, supply alone is just a free lunch. We don't price it adequately, and the price of these aren't very transparent, and it's like a free buffet. You put it all out and you have to consume a lot of it. Um, So TDM is a little bit of a way to countervail that. So maybe instead of taking, you know, you you arrange the buffet so that uh, uh, you don't have to pay for 50 pounds of steak every time somebody shows up, but maybe they take some potatoes and some cheap things, too, as far as that. Uh, Maybe that's a strained analogy, but as far as infrastructure goes. Um, The slide here is from Oregon, where they used an analysis coming out of the utility industry, um, where the utility industry in the 90s found that providing megawatts or demand solutions was cheaper than new power plants and transmission lines in some cases. And so it's an attempt to match up costs of supply. You see on the left, you see transit roadway capacity. Um, and on the right you see um, bike-ped and TDM programs. Uh, They all score pretty well in terms of meeting people's needs, but in terms of cost benefit, TDM and active transportation they found were the low-hanging fruit. So um, that is one of the reasons that we're focusing on that. We can talk more about that in the questions. TDM, again, we are Using an expansive version of it, not just the sort of traditional TDM programs you might have heard that are based on employees giving out bus passes and things like that, although that is part of it. So I'm going to talk briefly about three sort of big bins of TDM uh, policies or practices that we might we might uh, recommend or find as beneficial in this analysis. One is, the, is exactly what I was just talking about: the traditional TDM um, program that large employers have, where they give discounted bus passes or carpool parking, uh, bike lockers and that sort of thing. Expanding that a little bit, uh, looking at the parking availability and pricing, one of the, it's one of the strongest sort of drivers of whether people choose to drive or, or not, is whether parking is free and just how it's allocated. The new sharing economy um, and the availability of bike or car share, or Uber, and that sort of thing, um, and land use. and we're not gonna, that opens a huge, window, but we don't want to ignore it. Land use obviously has a lot to do with, um, how much people need to drive, uh, and what modes they take, and so we're going to at least be cognizant of that. I don't think there will be, it won't be a full land use study because we're really focusing on the transportation piece. We're not going to ignore it either. Um, connectivity is, um, another issue, and Laura will get at how we're going to look at this, but this is, this is something that I just did off of Google Maps and so. An example, uh, from a house um, just outside the Beltway to Falls Church High School, which is in this district where, if, if you were in high school, where you would go, is about a three-mile walk by the network that we have today. But it's under a mile if you, as profiles. So, we're going to be looking, that has a number of uh, outcomes. Obviously, probably you're not going to walk. You're going to drive. And if you're 14, you're going to have to get somebody to drive. You know and if you're driving at rush hour, because school starts at rush hour, you're going to be on the system at the same time everybody else is trying to get to work. And so not only is there a burden on you, but you're burdening the system too. Um, and it's not that if we created this crow flies or something like it that you would necessarily walk, but you might, you might, you might take a bike or you might drive a lot less. So, connectivity and. Uh, uh, concept of circuity of trips and where the short trips are going is important in this analysis. And finally, first and last mile solutions, it's um, how easy is it to get to transit or to get to wherever you're going from transit. It's a particular case of using sharing that I mentioned before. Uh, that's often a first and last mile solution, but that might not be the only thing. It might be the availability of parking of the ride. It might be how's the bike pad network connected to transit and that sort of thing. So those, are, those aren't the exhaustive list of policies and practices we're going to look at, but they're sort of exemplary in three of the main ones. And finally, um, I'm going to segue to Laura, but a uh, question about why, why do this now. Uh, one I've already alluded to is TDM has tended to not be emphasized in our field uh, as opposed to supply even though it's cheaper and has a number of benefits. The second thing is, which we'll, Laura will really go into, is the new methods that we have now and the ability to um, really think about this in a different way. The, the fan charts or the, um, the chart on the left on the slide, is um, repeatedly modeled demand estimates for the nation. They're rolled up from states and, and, and put together by the federal government. You can see year after year we have the same basic slope and estimate. The actual demand for highway travel is in the black line. So our models are not very accurate. Uh, And now we have an ability to, to transcend or augment the models with some empirical data that's very helpful. And just looking at this table on the right, that's what North Carolina DOT did. They had a bypass project that they were planning. And then they went and looked at trip making in the area and found that um, 50% of the the trips were going in and out. A third were circulating in the area downtown that they were trying to bypass, and only 13, 14% were through trips, and so the bypass was really not a very good option. Very expensive, would have chewed up a lot of land, it cost a lot, but they backed off. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Laura to talk about a little bit more about the data.
33: So, so I'm going to talk a bit about the data and then I ran some preliminary analysis to give you three examples within Northern Virginia to help us all get a little more concrete about what it is we're going to be doing. So this big data solution is not a robot that tells you what to invest in, and that's very important to get up in front. Um, instead, it is a way to make people who are making decisions, who are communicating with stakeholders, it's a way to make them more effective at what they do. It's also not a panopticon or a crystal ball that lets you see perfectly everything that's happening now and in the future. It's, again, a very good tool that can drastically increase the speed, the effectiveness, uh, the level of communication by which you do transportation demand management planning and other types of planning. So it's also uh, a very good tool for education and communication, which wasn't the initial reason we started looking at big data solutions for planning, but has been a really great co-benefit because these visualizations help explain um, complex trends very quickly and very effectively. Um, And again, one of the greatest things it can do is speed things up. Instead of waiting to find out when problems are happening, we can scan and we will scan all of Northern Virginia to look for particular patterns that lend themselves to cost effective and community effective solutions. And the last thing which isn't on the slide, but I know it was discussed earlier today, is we're also doing a special (coughs) analysis on this, on the um, income differential in transportation patterns we're going to be measuring so it will allow us to dig into measuring some of the equity implications that as we've heard has been historically difficult to get at. So a lot of co-benefits on top of the core purpose of this project. So uh, Nick talked about, uh, sorry Eric talked about demand solutions, last mile solutions, and uh, connectivity. So I'm going to give you three concrete examples of how we measure each of those. So what you're seeing on the map um, is an analysis on a particular road segment in uh, just south of the Beltway I believe. So the so little road segment is in yellow on your slide, and what I did is I analyzed for traffic in that road segment during congested hours for things that start in that uh, transportation analysis zone up top that says origin, where is it going? Simple question, but historically extremely difficult to answer. And we see that it's going all over the place, but there's a cluster of trips going to the lower red zone. What that tells us is that's a good opportunity for TDM. So this pair of transportation analysis zones, Mm -hmm. uh, it's less than five kilometers or three miles. So that means we could look at mitigating congestion in that segment and say, hey, there are a lot of short trips on this. That means that a certain set of options might be more feasible than others. Maybe this is good for some sort of parallel bike trail. Maybe this is great for a circular shuttle that's sort of a a quick rotating thing. What it may not be good for, you do not want to put a whole new subway system to connect to things that are only five kilometers apart. So that's an example of big data helping us be effective in triaging what we can do with our time and our money. And it also is good for communicating clearly with the people who would be affected by any policies that we put in. So another example, this is the same road segment, but now I looked at trips that started way up in Arlington. Where do they go? What's interesting is they tend to be going very far away. So another segment of congestion on this road segment is not this short distance, it's very long distance. Uh, No way anybody's going to bite that. So instead, if we're looking at mitigating this other chunk of congestion, this says you want to be thinking about buses, you want to be thinking about van pools, you want to be thinking about carpooling incentives, very different set of demand management policies to get at this chunk of the traffic. And if you do put in those policies, I can give you very good recommendations on where the nose of those bus or shuttle systems should be. If there's a stop up here in this origin zone, the most popular destination will probably be right around here, and that's a great way to make a better bet on the policies or the shuttles or whatever it is that you put in. So again, an example of not a robot telling you what to do, but a tool helping you make triaged effective decisions. So this is an example um, of Titans, where we are right now. This map shows for each of the road segments up here, for trips driving on them, are the trips pretty straight, uh, crows line type trips, or are they very indirect? Are they looping around, going out of their way? So if the zones are orange, it's a very loopy trip. Um, And if it's green or yellow, it's a more straight trip. And so what this tells us is uh, it helps us scan for places where we might have some connectivity issues. Where not just is it hard to get from place A to place B, but do the people in place A, are they trying to get to that place that's hard to get to? Um, So what we see is that people who come into the Tyson's Mall take indirect trips which is not surprising since the mall has a ring road. Now this is an example of when uh, you need to apply some local judgment and why this is a tool to enhance local judgment. We are not going to build a through road through the mall. That is a bad example of the connectivity policy. <laughs> However, if you look at the upper right corner, um, there's this sort of residential to commercial access road up here that's also orange. If we could zoom out of the map, you see that they have a very hard time getting on the highway to get to where they want to go. Sometimes they just want to go underneath, but they have to go up and down the highway and through. That might be a good opportunity for some extra connectivity uh, dollars or thinking to be put in. So my last example is in last mile uh, solutions, as Eric mentioned. So I've analyzed the Burke Center Park and Ride in Fairfax, uh, which is a park and ride that we know uh, in Northern Virginia. The park and rides are great, but they tend to get full pretty early in the morning. So what you may want to do to increase the usage of this transit station is get other pe- have other ways to get people to the station. So then you would want to know, maybe if we're going to have a shuttle, maybe we'll have bike lanes, should they be to the north or the south or the east and the west? And what this map tells us very clearly is it's an east-west trajectory that you want to focus on, possibly a little more to the east, which is interesting because that means people are sort of moving away from D.C. to get on transit to go back to DC. So you also may want to look at uh, connectivity to the next station in and how the parking affects that. So again, this is a tool that helps us target our efforts to enhance usage of this facility and make it more useful for the locals. Also, these are reasonably short trips. So again, we may be in an opportunity where trails, uh, circular shuttles might be a good option. So those are my three examples. Uh, Eric, do you want to go over briefly the outreach plan?
32: I think the only thing we want to stress here is that there's going to be a lot of it. We've already had an initial meeting with some uh, TDM providers and locals in uh, even before we have the notice to proceed. but we, if you see the slide, we have several check-in points and conversation points built into the project. And then this is the last thing. We just want to stress that this is not only going to produce the raw material for better TDM in Northern Virginia, but as, as we've sort of tried to get, is going to help us get the, get better at being thoughtful looking at trip making and not just you know speed on segments. Um, it's going to help us look at equity and, and social questions like that. It's going to produce some new visualizations that we can use to get stakeholders better involved. And um, I didn't mention this before, but a lot of the material that Laura's getting out of GPS, can go back into traditional models, which you still need to figure out what's going to go, what's going to happen when you change a project. We still need some projection capacity, but we can improve that and improve performance of those models with some of this empirical data that wasn't available. So with that, I think we'll pause and see if there are any questions.
0: Thank you for your uh, presentation. Mr. Connors.
32: This is great. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you all for the presentation. Thank you, Nick. when are we going to incorporate this in HB2? I mean, I'd like to
28: have my region right now
32: to look at some
0: projects um, and maybe figure out a way to redesign them, uh, shave some costs. Well, some money. Uh, part of HB2, as it goes, is to look at these types. And you get a, a, a more uh, I say points. It's incentivized to use these types of strategies in the project. So I'll let Mr. Donahue well, let me expand uh, on that. Because
2: the numbers we're looking
31: at now, the six-year plan we're going based on data old data that mm-hmm. may or may not be value because which is driving up the
0: cost of projects, and there's all kinds of things. So when does this all incorporate?
29: So, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Connors, um, I've, I've asked these folks to work with the local representatives as well as some of the uh, BDOT and DRPT staff in this region to have some uh, initial results and analysis available by September, which would still be in the application process if some of the local communities or the regionals want to send in this project. Um, I do think we need to do more planning like this, and the reason I really wanted to give Eric and Laura the opportunity to present before you is we couldn't do this just four years ago. This type of analysis, when we try to figure out where people are actually going, uh, a long time ago we had people stand on the side of the road and write down license plates, and then you send them questionnaires and said, at 4 o'clock on Friday, where were you going? <laughs> and people say, well, I don't know which Friday you're talking about, but I think I was going to the burger joint. Um, and, you know, sometimes they were right and sometimes they were wrong. Now when people use Google Maps with all the GPS enabled things, and this is all anonymous data just for anyone thinking about the privacy aspects of that, we know exactly when they started traveling and we know exactly where they went and we know how long it took them and we know where it got slowed down. And that type of analysis has really only been available, or data excuse me, has really only been available for the last two or three years. And so this is hopefully the first of several efforts we'll be doing in the state level looking at this. Um, I do want to stress, as Eric said, again, this isn't going to be a solution for everything. We need capacity in a lot of places, but what this is going to help us do is understand where there might be lower-cost options to solve some of these problems or to help us augment the capacity that we're putting in place. Um, But, Mr. Connors, we will be doing more of this, and this stuff should be available by mid to late September.
13: All right. Thank you very much uh, for your presentation
0: today, and I hope you have safe travels. uh, Alright, uh, what I'd like to do now is continue with, uh, there's a couple of things that we're just going to make announcements on and then I'm going to get to the tiered capital allocation review. Um, Mr., let's see, Mr. Lawson, are you here? Yes. Yeah. Maybe you just come up and and and, and you and Mr. Pitter can just uh, direct the board as to where to look for the information in your presentations. I think you guys can review it. I don't think we need to have an actual presentation. So,
31: yes, um, Secretary members of the board, um, before you you have um, copy draft copies of the CTF and the VDOT budget. Um, historically, or I should say, you know, over the last four or five years. I have not provided you with a draft budget. You've never seen a budget until it was put, brought to you just before the, the June meeting. Uh, what I wanted to do this, this year was to get you a draft budget that is that supports the, uh, the Fix-Year program that you received in draft form last month, to give you an opportunity to, to see the budget, to see how it's structured, how it's laid out, and what's included. And uh, I'll be more than glad to ask any, answer any questions you may have as you review it um, between now and the meeting in June. And you will be provided, you know, a, a formal final copy of the budget at the June meeting for action.
0: Right. Thank you. Uh, and so you'll be getting that, obviously, before then, too. But this gives you a whole month to look at the budget in that. And, Mr. Peter, I assume that's the same in DRPT? Yeah, the exact same thing. Usually y'all are getting this
34: in uh, early June or mid mid-June, about a week before the board meeting where you're voting on it. As John indicated, we thought it would be a good idea to get it to you sooner so you had more time. So, Since we didn't get to present uh, at the meeting uh, this month, we're both open for questions, either email or
13: give us a phone call.
0: Okay, now while you're up there, Mr. Chair, why don't you just go on into the tiered capital allocation review because that's going to be voted on in our action session. Uh, And I want to take us through that.
30: And and while um, Steve's pulling up the presentation, I'd just like to um, remind everybody what this is about. Um, In uh, 2012, there was um, some legislation that directed DRPT to change the way that we allocate both our operating and our capital funds. And so working with um, the the TISDAC, the Transit Service Delivery and Advisory Committee, of which um, Mr. Cole is also a member Um, DRPT came up with a recommended um, some new formulas. And that was then adopted by the CTB in December of 2013. And I know many of you weren't here at the time, but a few of you were. Um, We had a lot of, there were a lot of concerns raised at the time by various stakeholders who were concerned about disproportionate impacts of that change in the formula. So the CTB directed DRPT to conduct an analysis of the um, of these formulas and then come back to the CTB with recommendations on how it's working. So we've gone through that analysis and that, that's what Steve is going to be presenting here uh, today. So we do need to act on this during the action meeting as well.
0: Uh, and so Mr. Bitt, I would ask you to go through many of these slides or just what she, uh, Ms. Mitchell has already said. So I just go through them relatively quickly and get to the heart of the matter uh, for the CTB members to uh, look at. Okay? Sure. No problem. Okay. Um, and this first
34: slide, uh, Jennifer's really taking care of this. It, it's just the actual wording from the resolution back in December of 2013 where there was some controversy when we made this change to these formulas, and so you all asked us to take a look after we implemented it and determine if there was any jurisdiction that suffered a financial loss, um, and if so, should we provide transitional assistance. Um, and so that's what we set out to do with the review was we, 2015 was the first year of implementing the new process. Um, so we wanted to quantify the impact of the change in the funding level and then also the change in that allocation method on each jurisdiction. Also, uh, I do think we should make note that uh, we did this work. We came up with recommendations. It was presented to the TISDAC uh, uh, last month, which is the transit service. Del- Delivery Advisory Committee and both Mr. Cole and, and now Mr. Dyker on that committee. Um, and the committee actually, I, I'll get to the recommendations at the end, but the committee uh, recommended unanimously our recommendations. And I'm going to go through a lot of this uh, pretty quickly uh, at a high level. So, In doing our review, there were some constant assumptions. Uh, One of the constant assumptions is we took the 2015 capital program as is. We didn't change it. We left the federal funding um, as was allocated in the 2015 six-year program. Uh, What did change uh, was for WMATA and VRE, we had to allocate their allocations of funding. We had to essentially uh, divide that out by the different benefiting jurisdictions. And then for the, so, so we had actually what we did, and then we said, okay, what would we have done if we had not made these changes? What would have happened? And without going into all the detail here, that's essentially what this is. It's going back to the prior methodology and saying, without the new money and without changing the methodology, what would have happened? And this touches really on what Jennifer had mentioned. There was a change, uh, yeah, we got more funding, essentially, um, and part of getting more funding out of H- HB 2313 back in the 2013 session, part of that was we needed to put some performance around our allocation and some of the tiering over our capital allocation process. Um, this, just at a high level, it takes uh, it. it I can go in more detail if you'd like, but this really is the actual formulas. So it's the top one here is the old formula, and the bottom is the new uh, methodology that y'all adopted back in December of 13. This is the actual summary of the allocations made in 2015 for the capital transit program and it breaks it down by the the three different tiers that the board uh, adopted and now finally we get to uh sort of a breakdown of at a high level the old process if you took the 2015 projects and ran them through that process and at that point there were different tiers and another point was uh the actual cost of the project (coughs) that we applied our matching percentage, whether it was the total cost of the project or the non-federal share of the project. This slide gives uh, some relative, uh, a range of uh, variation of, this, of the uh, allocation percentages that you all make towards transit capital projects under both the old methodology <laughs> and the new methodology. And I think the main point I want to make out make here is, On the very bottom line, the the main item that has a significant change, um, it's really the lowest tier of prioritization that y'all set. And the other point here is not everybody either puts 80% federal on a project or zero. There's a lot of of the dollars of the capital program actually have a number somewhere in the middle of federal funding. And finally, this slide, actually, uh, it, it shows the analysis of comparing the actual 2015 to the 2000 uh, to the prior methodology using the old level of funding. And it shows that everyone did receive more funding, all the jurisdictions, as well as this is broken down by CTV district. And this slide just reiterates what I just said I and mean, gives a few percentages around that. And finally, there are a few other observations that I think are important to note as we move forward. Um, First, we just looked at 2015, and within 2015, that's a one-year application period. Uh, So uh, one grantee may have only applied for vehicles in that year, and then their capital allocations would have just been in Tier 1, whereas the year before, they may have had no vehicle purchases and all their allocations might have been in tier two and three. And the point I'm break, making there is that would have skewed whether they were perceived to see a, receive a bigger financial gain or a little bit less of a financial gain. Um, also, I think it's important to recognize, you know, this change did have an impact. Uh, so um, it did, cha- you know, change any methodology it, it does have some impact versus, but with the new funding, I think at the end of the day, everyone did receive more money um, financially. So is in any, any process or methodology change, you can always come back later and question, and I think that's the, the final bullet here is really one of the recommendations uh, from the TISDAC was to continue to look at this process. And In fact, it's in the code that the TISDAC is required every three years. Uh, to take a look at these allocation procedures.
0: So, so the bottom line as you're suggesting keep the same allocation and we'll look at it again in three years. Yeah,
34: second bullet, no transitional assistance is needed and we currently recommend maintaining the current methodology.
13: Okay, questions of Mr. Pitter. Uh, Mr. Dyke? Yeah, just one observation. I think when the committee met, we also talked about the fact, even though it was a reference here that we're supposed to review this every three years, that we would be continuously monitoring <coughs> this and see yeah. if there were any changes, the need for any adjustments, which we'd bring back to CTB. Right.
34: And I'll add to that, that we put that type of language in the resolution you'll be voting on, that we'll, there'll be a constant
0: review process.
23: But no need to bring back to the CTB unless there's a recommended change. Yeah, unless they want to recommend
0: a change, <laughs> they'll, you'll bring it to the CTB. Okay, everybody, I thank uh, Mr. Pitter, thank you very much. I think next up uh, we have Ms. Julie Brown, uh, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about primary expenses. Here, there's Julie.
2: I do want to provide you an update of our
35: application process this year. And I'm just going to really hit the highlights of this, recognizing that we're a little short on time.
11: Right.
35: And I'll go to this slide just to um, explain a proposal we have for you this year. Um, This year was a little unusual. We had six applications submitted initially with requests for $1.2 million. We actually have an allocation of $1.4 million. This is in contrast to last year. Last year we had $212,000, and we had two applications that were tied. So those two counties received $106,000 of their request for $300,000. So the first two projects you see listed are the two counties that received a partial allocation last year. We are proposing this year, since we do have more money than we have request, that we allow those two counties that were impacted last year to have their request for last year not count against their $300,000 limit for this year. That would really only impact one county, and that is Loudoun County. Um, Loudoun County, their initial request of $194,000, if we allowed that to count as completing last year's request, they could still make a request for a full $300,000 this year, and that would be within our budget, so we are proposing that. The other thing I will point out is on our primary extension. Um, this year we had 101 applications that were scored. We had requests of $22.6 million and we had funding of $9.6 million. So we are proposing that in addition to using this year's funding that we also use half of the funds available for next year because each of these applications represents pavements that are deficient today. And if we were to use half of next year's allocation, $5.9 million, that would bring the funding available up to $15.5 million, and that would ensure that every district does have at least some of their urban deficient pavements paid this year um, based on the request that we have.
36: And especially with the, the passage of uh, 1887 and, and looking at state of good repair, it just made sense to me that that uh, we took some of next year's uh, funds and brought them forward, because these, these roads aren't going to get any better over, the, over that period of time. And the reality is the budget impact, because of the schedule of, of this work, the budget impact will not be felt until the fiscal year that the money is coming from. But again, we thought it was important that they would move forward with these uh, because it, at, at the end of the day, there are proficient pavements are statewide, whether they're on our system or, or on the local system.
13: Mr. Chairman? Yes, General, general, general. question. I understand completely, Mr. Commissioner, what you're saying. General question. What happens when we get to that fiscal year and you've got half the money for that year available to you then? And you've got all these projects that really do need uh, the, the, the pavements. These really do need them, too. What, right, but then what happens that year when we have got 5.9 million for 17? The, really the reality is money? you either
36: you either keep uh, grabbing a, 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 an additional year forward um, uh, until we get to the full implementation of the state of good repair funds, um, or just some years will be less than others. But again, just <coughs> intuitively to me, as the road isn't, we have a road that is deficient now and needs to be paved it doesn't make it better to wait. And I think you all understand it. So at some point, we make them up short. I mean, that's, that's how what we're doing, but I'd rather take care of these now. And uh, again, whether there's more funding, whether it's revenue, there are all kinds of things that might impact those roads in the future, but we have these in front of us today.
35: And I think it would be safe to assume that if we did not use part of the FY17 allocation, those projects that we'll be funding now would be the first priority next year. So it's just a question of whether they're getting their funding out of this year's cycle or whether they're first in line next year because they are next in line for the worst payment.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Mr. Rose, I mean, <coughs> we've got plenty of needs. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. we have more needs than we have money. So, uh, And it, it, this problem gets worse the longer we wait. But So we'll have to come to you. And <coughs> you always have the option to move some monies around, too, at the board level, too. So thank
2: you.
35: So this will be before you in June for action on the proposed list. Uh, We would plan to put the tentative list on our website to look and see what's being proposed.
18: And i will be happy to answer any questions if you have any.
0: Okay. Thank you, Ms. Brown. Thank you very much. Um, The only other thing we had left, and I think I'm going to defer this. I'll see Mr. Donahue in here. Anyway, we're we're (laughs) going to defer the Potomac River Crossing study, the overview we'll get it out to you and then we'll have a discussion on it uh next uh, next month. So we'll be making sure we get that uh, to you in advance uh and he will go through uh through that with us next month. Uh, that's all I believe on the workshop session. Uh didn't want to make one comment I just received an email uh looks like the house has voted to just move transportation <coughs> funding from May to July or so they kicked it down the road a couple months. Just to remind you, Mr. Uh, Philpatrick, right now, we're still full speed ahead on our projects. Um, it's very expensive for us to stop. And should we need to stop? Um, uh, we will, but there's no sense. I know a lot of states have already said, well, we're going to stop. And I don't see how that makes a lot of sense, because once you stop, then all of a sudden it's now prime time for us getting these projects done. We're not being. Um, uh, uh, good, being good stewards, we've got a plan. But I mean, we make the decision to stop putting, doing projects. That's a big decision. And the next step would be coming to the board here to say, "All right, we got 400 and some projects with federal monies. Which ones are we going to stop? Because we'd probably make a recommendation. We'd go to the ones that are most cl- you know, close to completion and work our way down. So just letting you know, um, very big uncertainty." Uh, uh, that uh, looks like it's not been dealt with again in that regard. So, okay, there's nothing more than workshop. We'll call the workshop to a close, and then we will resume our uh, previous um, action items. So we'll call the action uh, agenda back into um, to, uh, session. Let me see here. I think we had finished public comment, so now we need to move on to the approval of the minutes. Is there a motion for approval? Motion second. second. A second. Thank you very much. Any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. All right. They move forward. Okay. Ms. Snyder, we have a action on uh, limited access in Amherst County.
23: Thank you. Uh, yes, I just have the one item. Uh, request for a limited access control change. It's to widen an existing break um, for the South Riverview Road off of the Route 210 project. And it also includes shifting uh, the proposed right-of-way and limited access line, which, requ- which would um, create a 0.573-acre fi- a surplus property.
0: Uh, Ms. Valentine.
23: Um, I move the resolution.
2: Second. Is there a
0: second?
13: Second. Do oh, you have a second? second? Second. Okay. Any discussion? Mr. Chairman. Yes, Ms. Brown. This does not include signalization on 29.
2: Though.
25: No, no. Not. <laughs> <laughs> no. not close enough. <laughs> That's right.
13: Any more questions? Any other
2: discussions?
0: All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Thank you, Ms. Snyder. Thank you. I think we have Nick Roper. Got uh, a couple things in local location and
8: design. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is for a limited access control change for the Jones Branch Connector located in Fairfax County here in the Tyson's Corner area. Um, It's for a modification of the limited access control line along both sides of the Jones Branch connector east of Jones Branch Drive uh, and a break in the existing limited access control line along the northbound lane of I-495 where the proposed limited access control line will extend along both sides of the proposed Jones Branch connector extension to Capital One Drive north. A location design public hearing was held on December 12, 2014 uh, in McLean, Virginia. The project has been endorsed by the County of Fairfax by a letter dated April 9, 2015. And the limited access control change has been approved by FHWA via email dated April 30, 2015. Uh, total project cost is $56 million, and it's uh, requested approval by the CTV of the limited access modification. Any discussion? Mr.
13: Chairman?
0: Yes, Mr. Farrell.
13: <laughs> Sorry to interrupt again. It Would be helpful on these if we had maps instead of don't just a description? I, mean, I, I don't one
8: think we do. You know, that's what we usually do. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, sir. I, the I think map. there should be a map in map your packet, map. but if I can... Uh,
13: well, I'm looking on it. it. Okay. So so there there is a, map. We'll, we a, we we a map. We'll ensure that
36: we have a map link. Yeah, you're supposed to be maps in there, Yeah. It is helpful to be able to see what these are. This is a... Or, or sort of normal business as part of this project. This project is being uh, delivered actually by the county or is it It's being designed by
8: by uh, Fairfax County and funded by Fairfax County. It'll be administered by DOT for construction.
36: And this is, but, but again, we'll ensure that we have a map for all of these these. Uh, one that's uh understandable. We won't use the uh, right-of-way drawing. Uh,
0: any
13: other comment? I, I would just say, Bill, that uh, Jim and I had this presentation during our pre-CTV with The District Administrator, I'm sure Scott did as well, and they explained it's just a normal break-and-shift.
8: It's a a, a normal break-and-shift. Right now, the Jones Branch connector um, only takes access from Tyson's area to 495 Express Lanes. This uh, extension is going to take it all the way across 495 and link to uh, Dolly-Madison Highway Route 123. So it'll provide new access from the east to the Express Lanes. And, and actually a new connection between the communities and businesses east and west of the uh, 495. And Any more discussion? with the uh,
13: 29
37: bill.
2: <laughs> Any more discussion?
8: All those in
0: favor, please say aye. 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 Any aye. opposed? Aye. Thank you. Next one.
2: I'll, t- I'll no.
36: take this one. Okay. Uh, uh, this is a pretty simple thing. This was an agreement between the USGS, US Geological Survey, and VDOT because it's more than fifty thousand dollars, seeking the board's approval. It's basically a cooperative effort to look at uh, stream data in Virginia as we design our bridges for bridge scour. And uh, again, I'm uh, asking for the board's approval that I enter into this agreement uh, with the United States the Geological Survey.
0: <coughs> Their motion. To move. Second. 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 Any other discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Okay, motion passes. Uh, Mr. Gray, maintenance division, you got a naming
37: here. Sir, good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. This is in Culpeper District. It's a bridge naming for First Lieutenant Robert Yowell Memorial Bridge on Route 231, North Blue Ridge Parkway over the Robinson River in Madison County. Um, We have reviewed this request and BDOT recommends approval.
13: Mr. Tunnel.
23: Before I make a motion, I'd just like to say I know the county is very interested in expediting this. Lieutenant, First Lieutenant Yao, brother, I think, is um,
33: in his 90s. So anything that VDOT can do, if approved by the board, would be appreciated. I
37: believe the signs have already been fabricated and covered and is set to be uh, uncovered for a ceremony this weekend, I believe.
2: Wonderful. Awesome. So moved. <laughs>
37: Is there a second?
25: Second. second. <laughs> <laughs> that This is the living
0: person. I really... I, I, took,
2: took a I change. Like any, any more discussion? <laughs> All
0: those in favor, please say aye. Uh, aye. Aye, opposed. Okay, thank
2: you. So Mr. Lawson.
31: Good afternoon, Mr. Secretary, members of the board. Um, Before you, you have a a request to to add two projects to the six-year program. Uh, One is an HR TAC project. It's uh, continued work on uh, 64 Phase 2. And then there is um, a second project that is in Petersburg. It's a locally administered urban project. Uh, I recommend your approval.
0: The HR TAC uh, doesn't have any any of our monies on it? No sir, okay. it is our money. It's okay. just a small amount
31: of monies from HR TAC to, to move the project forward. Yes. Motions?
0: Move approval. Second?
31: Second. Uh, any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. aye. Opposed? Okay. Uh, the second item I have before you today is the, the normal trans monthly transfers. Um, they're in your package. There's no major projects included. Um, These um, reference to the transfers that were done between March 21 and April 23. I request your approval.
32: I move.
31: So moved by Ms. Valentine. I second. Second. Any discussion?
0: All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Thank you. Mr. Lawson, Ms.
35: Brown. I have two items for you, Ms. Chairman, members of the board. Um, the first item is a request for recreational access funding to serve the Galbraith marshall Park, Culpepper County, and Culpepper District. Um, this project will provide um, a roadway to serve the site. It's 30-foot wide, 700 a mile long. Local assistance division recommends your approval of the request for the maximum recreational access allocation of $350,000, that's $250,000 unmatched, and $100,000 matched.
0: Mr. Tom. Definitely. Second. Second. Any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Opposed? Thank you. Uh,
35: the Brown. second item is a request for a modification to a previously approved recreational access project to serve the Daniel Boone Wilderness Trail Interpretive Center in Scott County, Bristol District. Um, CTB originally approved an access project in 2009 to serve a $1.3 million access road. Since that time, Scott County has revised its plans and the location of the proposed site. So this project will provide a new road to the new location that is 30 feet wide, approximately eight hundredths of a mile long. The local assistance division recommends your approval of the revised project and modification of the original allocation, which would result in a 50000 dollars unmatched allocation, but we would return the $100,000 matched allocation to the pot of money that we use for allocation.
0: Mr. Matt.
37: Yes, yeah, so moved, and hopefully creates some congestion with tourism.
0: <laughs> Is there a second? Second. Any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Thank you. Okay, Mr. Pitter.
34: Mr. Chairman, members of the board, uh, ask for your approval of the department's recommendation uh, regarding the tiered capital allocation review, which would be to provide no transitional assistance Continue the current methodology, but also continue to take a look at uh, the process each year.
7: Move approval, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Holden was
0: made a second? second. 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 Any discussion? All those favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Okay, Mr. Moore. Oh, no, we had Mr. Law. Oh, Mr. Mr. Okay. I'll take care of this. All one. right. This is. Um,
37: this is. We have one bid um, this month for for your approval for award. It's to uh, slurry pavers. It's a latex, latex overlay. Um, we've uh, we reviewed, the, reviewed the bid and feels a good value. You will note that it is a little over the, our engineer's estimate. However, this is a commodity that um, very, few, very few companies offer at this time. So we feel like this is a, a good value, and we do recommend approval.
13: Move approval. chairman.
0: Yes. Okay. OK. Is there a second by Mr. Williams over there? OK. Any other discussion?
13: Yes, Mr. Kaspers. I'm troubled that once again we have a $6.8 million bid with a single bidder. Um, are there not other options in the Commonwealth that would be interested in a contract of this size? If, 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 if I, there's, I think there are really only
36: two contractors in Virginia that do slurry seal. Um, one in the South Central Lynchburg area that does, does this type of work and an slurry paver. Some of this has to do with their ability to mobilize to that, that part of the state. Again, this particular type of thing, you get contractors that will travel. We've not had many out-of-state uh, slurry contractors that I'm aware of. I think, um, and, and, and again, sometimes that's not the best either. When you get an out-of-state contractor that's not a moving state-to-state. The, the product itself so, so you understand what slurry seal is it's basically um, it's a uh, liquid asphalt emulsion and fine aggregate and um, it's a it's a thin coating that goes over sealed roadways uh, it's not tremendously different from driveway sealer, but it's used it's more of the industrial version of that and that's what it is um, so again this is a this is a type of contract that you just don't you just don't get a lot of uh, uh, competition It's pretty expensive to, to buy the equipment, and uh, and then there's a lot of mobilization
13: running around the state with it. Is that a statewide number for a year for an annual contract? No, this no. is just for the Richmond for district. The Richmond district. Yes. So what, what do we spend statewide, roughly on slurry? Now
36: we'll get we, we can get you that number, Mr. Casper. Uh, I don't
13: know what the total
36: value, of, and I don't know that anyone in here can recite that uh, approximately how much we we do in in latex and regular slurry. Uh, by the way, latex happens to be sort of the better version of slurry seal. So you have two versions, and latex modified provides a uh, better, uh, better product. So we'll get that. We'll get you the number about how much we spend and how many different contractors we have doing this work. Again, I'm aware of two in Virginia.
0: Any other questions? All those in favor? The aye? Aye. aye. Opposed. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I've got one quick item of new business, and then I'll open it up to the floor. Um, after yesterday's uh, topic regarding uh, I-66, um, I want to give a little more definition of how we propose to go forward, or how we will go forward. Uh, I have spoken with uh, Mr. Kilpatrick, Mrs. Mitchell, and uh, Doug uh, Kulamay, Director Kulamay. i going to get those uh, three together. Uh, what I envisioned happening is uh, Upon uh, either today or tomorrow, when I get back, I will uh, call the new uh, steering committee uh, into uh, uh, session, whatever we call it. Uh, I expect that's about 45 days or so out uh, because I want to wait until after July 1st when the new law is officially effective. Uh, And uh, (coughs) uh, during that committee, I believe I have the uh, ability to name the chairman. And so, Mr. Donahue, I'm going to name chairman of that committee is uh, my uh, representative on there uh, and because it really is the executive branch that is uh, charged with making sure working with the agencies the right procurement. Um, during that time, uh, we will d- lay out in detail at that first meeting, uh, probably have Mr. Lawson or um, uh, someone else, probably him, lay out in detail all the financing structures that we're looking at on the private side. Uh, obviously on the public side, excuse me, uh, but interim uh, we will be providing to the public sector, the private sector, um, the uh, traffic analysis to think the inputs that we use for our models. In other words, so that they can to take those inputs, uh, and we're going to open this up uh, for any type of uh, the uh, uh, private meetings that we've been asked for, for anybody interested, and we'll work with the P3 office on how we stream them and get them But that would be uh, the audience between Mrs. uh, Mitchell and Mr. Kilpatrick meeting with any third parties uh, that uh, we deem are are adequate to to actually look at a private party uh, being involved in 66. Now, that may take more than 45 days, and I suspect after 45 days, um, um, this committee will probably want some additional work. They may want to hear from uh, people also. So we're going to work out, you know, get a letter out and we'll probably have a, you know, a detailed release to give some definition after working with Doug and the others specifically because we do want to be under our guidelines and to the extent, you know, keep consistent with them. But what the intent would be by the end of this summer, and that's in August or so, um, that we would have a fairly good direction of which way uh, we appear to be heading. in that. That doesn't mean we'll have all the contracts are done, but it appears where we'll be going. That's what the intention is. Um, So we'll be working down a couple of paths. One, the development of the uh, continued structures if it is a public procurement, uh, and then also making sure we're getting the information to our private parties, uh, and then also sitting down with them uh, and uh, having proprietary talks that won't be (coughs) disclosed but in terms of whether or not there's an opportunity for one of them to participate uh, in in the procurement. Now, I know that's just a broad, broad strokes. We'll, we're going to sit down and give details, but that's, a, I think, a, a, a general overview of how we'll proceed on this, uh, working towards uh, a conclusion of of how well, we might move forward on financing. So I'll get that out to you so everybody knows, and we'll have dates. Of course, we'll make this public through uh, through that announcement
13: and that. A uh, question on that, the, we had a lot of... Public comment today about the design. Yes, um, I assume that's fairly well settled on the public side. The 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 PPTA piece did mm-hmm. provide design changes. Sure. In, in fact, even if it's a public procurement, the design bill will,
0: will have changes. I'm sure too. Okay. okay. In other words, so. But I'll let Mr. Kilpatrick respond. Our, our that.
36: staff, uh, uh, Helen Cuervo and Renee Hamilton are here today, as well as Susan Shaw, who's our Mega Projects Director. Have been leading the effort. The local effort and every day we're looking at new and different ways of providing uh, these improvements and reducing the impacts. And they made tremendous progress to date listing. We've had dozens of meetings with both big and small meetings, formal meetings and informal to, uh, to listen to, to the communities and some of the challenges. And, you know, in many cases, these, the, uh, there's one group that wants a particular thing that's in direct conflict with another group. And so it's a it's a very fine uh, needle we're trying to thread here with this project. Um, I actually am meeting at two o'clock today with uh, Delegate King and Supervisor Smith and some of the folks that I believe were here today. My goal of that meeting is to continue to listen and get input from from the citizens on on the impacts of the project. Um, I think we can continue to refine the scope and scale of this. Um, what, what I don't think is, I don't think you're gonna see us growing the project. I don't think you're gonna see the footprint getting bigger, longer, taller, those types of things. But really, and, and this is the challenge, what our folks have gone out there and said this is the maximum footprint, and we have been steadily squeezing and pushing and, and, and adopting the, the footprint, uh, to down to a, to a manageable project. So as I see us continuing to move forward, I think the likelihood is that the total project cost may come down. I don't think you're going to see it going up because, again, we're – if we reduce a bridge or a flyover, that's that's a clear reduction in cost. Some of these things impact uh, uh, the uh, the total capacity, too, but, again, this is is an ongoing uh, discussion we're having, and uh, um, we'll continue to be coming back to the board as as we get this thing
13: tighter and tighter and get better and better information. Okay, we'll, we'll, just to follow-up on that. Um, I understand that this committee will not have, because we'll be looking at P3s, and there's not a P3 for inside the, the beltway. But I do think that information is relevant, and so I, I, yeah, I would C- encourage staff to be well-versed the, on that piece, too. Yeah, certainly
0: how they can come from an operations standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I have that. Now, I just want to point out, just as we charged the private uh, community yesterday to, to use their ingenuity to come up with this. And I've also charged VDOT to use their ingenuity. If we want to be this, then act like uh, our, private, our private partners do. If, in other words, if you've got rules and regulations or VDOT rules and regulations and they're allowed uh, and, and in good engineering, use that uh, creativity. We would like to get to zero impact. I don't know if we can get to that. But but my point is, it's sort of a dual challenge. I've uh, accepted, you know, on the on the, on the financing side, you, know, you got a better structure, we want to hear about it. But the same goes, and Mr. Kilpatrick has accepted it, and the same goes on the VDOT side. I do believe it's a much different place than what it was, but we need to act like that, too. So I'm comfortable that... Uh, we're not. My point is, we're just not doing this in a vacuum, uh, and uh, and uh, we'll keep the you not only you informed, but to the public to the extent it's not proprietary data as we move forward. No. Okay. Does anybody else have any other uh, uh, business? Well, if not, I'll thank again, uh, Mr. Grozinski, for his hospitality, and Mr. Casperitz, for his hosting uh, the tours yesterday. I thank all the citizens who came out and spoke. Uh, We do uh, really uh, take that seriously. It's been a pleasure being here, and with that, we'll uh, adjourn the
9: uh, formal session.